Good evening, and welcome to Progressively Horrified, the show where we hold horror to standards it absolutely never agreed to. <laughs> Good evening and welcome to Progressively Horrified, the podcast where we hold horror to progressive standards never agreed to. Tonight, we're talking about the 1992 horror classic that made Tony Todd haunt your dreams every night since Candyman. I am your host, Jeremy Whitley, and with me tonight, I have a panel of cinephiles and cinebites. First, my co-host and comic book writer, Ben Kahn. Ben, how are you tonight? This movie was pretty sweet. Moving on. Next up, uh, my call. frequent collaborator, comics artist, and certified vampire aficionado, Emily Martin. How are you tonight, Emily? I'm uh, mixing it with love and making the world taste good. God. All right. And our special guest tonight, one of our favorite guests, writer and friend of the show, Danny Lord. Danny, we're so happy to have you back. I'm super glad to be back. I don't have a funny intro. I'm, I just exist here, which is fine i guess if it helps i didn't have a funny intro either <laughs> i mean now you do yeah uh, it's totally planned we're all just striving to exist at this point yeah uh man i gotta say tony when tony todd talks about existing as a rumor i'm like not actually being Mm, that sounds pretty sweet <laughs> right that was like oh hey yeah okay all right I'm picking up what you're laying down. Um, the exquisite pain part, maybe. I don't know. Pinhead likes it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, speaking of Pinhead, I mean, this was, of course, based on a Clive Barker short story. Um, it is directed not by Clive Barker, like Hellraiser, but by Bernard Rose. Uh, and like we said, it stars Tony Todd, as well as Virginia Madsen, Cassie Lemons, uh, Vanessa Williams, Xander Berkeley. And uh, Ted Raimi? <laughs> Ted Raimi? I gotta be Ted honest, Raimi I did not expect in his, to see Ted Raimi in this movie. In his star-making performance as Billy the Bad Boy. Uh, as for this movie and what, what the Candyman is about, according to IMDb, the Candyman, a murderous soul with a hook for a hand, is accidentally summoned to reality by a skeptic grad student researching the monster's myth. Um, Semi-accurate, not, not actually what it's about so much as what happens. What happens in the first you know 15 minutes of this movie. Uh, would you guys say this one is spoopy as in not scary, spooky as in a little scary, terrifying as in very scary, or more just existentially disconcerting? I'm going to Ter- say terrifying. Terrifying in the way Freddy is. It's not necessarily about what's on the screen so much as what is on the screen and what what that implies is possible in the world. Yeah, I'm going to say exactly that. Like there's a somewhere between terrifying and existentially disconcerting because of the subject matter they don't fuck around with some of this shit some of the imagery is pretty terrifying and you're in your face and i was very surprised also any movie in which the actor playing the villain got a thousand dollars for every bee sting and there were 23 bee stings deserves to be listed as terrifying oh yeah yeah i feel like for me it was mostly scary borderline terrifying and then the things tony todd is saying and then the way those words will make you feel is existentially disconcerting. I mean, that was my favorite part. There's some real, like, if Phantom of the Opera was an actual horror villain, 
like vibe which was like his goal right yeah. like like i remember him he specifically was like he wanted this role because he wanted his own phantom of the opera yeah <laughs> a lot of it. nailed it yeah so he was like that was the point because there's something so romantic and seductive about his mm-hmm. performance oh everything he's so sexual all the time forever especially when he's gunning people spoilers He's got a hook for a hand. So I, I mean, the summary barely tells you that, so that might be a spoiler for some oh, people. Yeah. Who knows? Shit. Well, <laughs> spoilers, bees. Yeah, I mean that's that's a good lead into our trigger warning. There's yes. blood. There's guts. There's assault. Bees. There's racism. There's gaslighting. There's children in danger. There's cops. There's white people needlessly putting their black friends and children in danger, uh, and there are bees, lots of them. So oh, many oh, bees. I love bees, but mouthful of bees. Mm-hmm. So, ass. like, for what anyone who's listening who doesn't know, like, with the bees, this this is not CG. I mean, like, mm-hmm. apparently every mm-hmm. cast and crew member had to wear bee suits, and everyone got at least one sting. And like, there was a mouth guard filled with bees on set. So, if you don't like bees, bees, <laughs> bee, yeah. Aware. They they talked about in some of the you know trivia and stuff that I was reading about it that they're young bees so that their stings would not be as bad when people got stung and people did get stung. Um, so they had to card the bees. If thinking about my girl still makes you cry, you're gonna have a bad time. To be fair, <laughs> it still makes me cry, but not just because of the bees, just because the entire setup is built for you to cry. Yeah. Yeah. Um, also, apparently, also... the same bee handler in both movies. So. Yep. Oh, good. He's like the bee guy. Yeah. If there was like a bee movie around that time um, with bees, um, with actual real bees. Yeah, he. Like that's what he did. In the bee movie Can well. we try to <laughs> yes. track down this bee wrangler and have him do Jerry Seinfeld's bee movie with us? I'm Ooh. desperate to know what he thinks of bee movie starring Jerry Seinfeld. <laughs> that's. I mean, if we can make it happen, join our Patreon. That'll yeah. be our life goal, Patreon. That's, that's what we use any Patreon money we get for, is this, tracking down a bee This feels like a great Vice article. Like, we track down the bee guy from My Girl and Candyman, and we just asked him a bunch of questions about bees. I wonder if he was in Jupiter Ascending. I mean, if he was involved tangentially. Yeah, because I, I think they also use some real bees there as well. yeah. Yeah, I mean, they had to in order to detect the royalty because you, you know, bees do That's that. Bees. How do you no think, royalty. How do you think they? Got we can't. Eddie we can't. We cannot. That's. <laughs> you know how some people have like, you know, like this is like my hard limit. I think if we want to talk about anything else aside from my all-consuming rage about Jupiter rising, uh, that is mine. <laughs> Fair. I will okay. never forgive her for letting her mom still wash toilets at the end of that movie. Um, yeah. I will yeah. never forgive. I was so angry. Yeah. This movie, That's... Candyman, also has um, strobing needles, dog death, and the arsler. Yeah. All those fun <laughs> I just things. to put that one in there. Yeah. It's, the um, it's also uh, interesting. We mentioned it's based on Clive Barker's The Forbidden now, The Forbidden takes place in Liverpool in England. Um, and as we've noted, people who adapt Clive Barker stuff are dedicated to it not taking place in England. Um, 
And so this one uh, is, is set in Chicago and very specifically in and around the Cabrini Green projects, uh, which are a real place which uh, a lot of people making fictional stuff in, in the uh, 90s and 80s were obsessed with. This is a much better take on making a Clive Barker story set in America. Yeah. One where it's actually... Make, taking advantage of the setting and having that impact the themes and plot and aesthetic and instead of just filming it in England and doing a weird ADR over it with American voice actors. <laughs> yeah, the uh, the setting I felt was a really, really important, not just because of the, the commentary and all that kind of stuff, but I felt like, you know, unlike stuff like Hellraiser where it's, you know, uh, um you know the the some of the more interesting parts of this film have to do with the um sociological city planning that they talk about and and the story of the uh, cabrini green so um which uh, apparently is is uh, a fascinating real life story um not including a lot of hooks in real life from what i have gleaned not a lot but not none I mean, construction, use all sorts of shit. Um, I'll count it. Yeah. This 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 movie and the and the the book uh, really skate along the edge of some real life stuff. Um, you know, for for instance, the uh, there was a, a killer called the Candyman. Uh, he did specifically target teenage or younger boys. And they did inv- involve rape and murder. Um, yeah. And eventually, he got killed by one of the the boys that he was using to pull in other kids um, when he tried to turn on him. Also, the the story in this where we learn that the old lady Ruthie Ann was killed by somebody coming through the lack of a wall behind her medicine cabinet is also a real story yep. about you know an old lady that got killed because yeah those projects are built really shoddily and they, there was not a wall there and somebody just climbed in through her bathroom and killed her that was actually the first kind of scene where i'm like fully drawn in 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 a unique way not just as like a horror fan but like this feels different to me the way that the women in the janitorial staff act and are directed because it's entirely natural yeah and oftentimes those specific characters especially let's face it it is um those black characters that are used for exposition are in in and of its in and of themselves often like a version of the magical negro like you know like they are presented they present all of the information they uh exist basically to help like the protagonists you know have all all the clues right Mm -hmm. um but rather and like often so you see an almost theatrical uh directorial choice with those characters usually but neither of those women had that yeah yeah which was really interesting to me is that they sound like a hundred percent like just natural the way that you would hear those women talk to each other and to other people right um and, and like i that was really drew me in and like also the, some of the same way that like so there's a certain level of the way that the cabrini uh green projects are presented that i'm like oh i know that if you if you have not experienced living in the projects like obviously to a certain extent the art is like over exaggerated like the graffiti but like the way that people communicate with each other 
uh, also is very realistic. <laughs> I was actually talking to Vita about it. And like both of us were like, we, we know exactly what those hallways smell like. Like that was like the buildings we grew up in, you know, uh, you know, for good or for ill. Um, it is a really good rendition emotionally of what those uh, buildings are. Yeah. And they, they shot some of it in Cabrini Green. Uh, apparently they had to make a deal to make some of the, the actual gang members extras in order to be allowed to shoot there, which was a wild. Uh, I mean, but, that's that fair. Was... Like mm -hmm. they got to stop business. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. like that, that it sounds wild for me to say, but I'm like, this is not like, there are so many people's daily life interrupted by filming mm -hmm. in the projects. And also it puts, it puts that population under like a certain like scrutiny, right? By the outside, because then you've got like cops and like local politicians and everything being like, well, if something happens to this group, like that's a problem and you've, you've put them under such scrutiny. So I don't, I'm like, yeah, that makes sense that they've got to. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> that that they've that they've got to hire some people, some yeah. people. Yeah, and I, I have no doubt setting stuff like this here. I mean, you know, it's Green and Green. Uh, I discussed the fact that like it's also like where Amanda Waller is from when they want to establish that she's tough, like she's from Cabrini Green. Like, uh, it's it's like shorthand at this point for somewhere that's that's tough to grow up in, um, and I'm sure that like doing that in movies and books and stuff did not do the people actually living there any favors <laughs> like between the fact that you know the i'm sure that puts a lot of uh scrutiny that you know people governing chicago don't want on them so they're gonna then put that on other people by by highlighting how difficult some of those people's lives can be in this kind of situation. You're not really doing them any favors. You're not those people it, don't make anything off of this. And it's not as if any sort of change that usually happens when you put the sort of Hollywood highlight is more akin to gentrification than it is societal improvement. You know, because it's not about improving the lives of the people who live there typically, but it is about the idea of undoing or hiding like the truth after it's like been out there yeah and like, let me you know if this exist is... anymore but it's not as if people in chicago suddenly like like the government suddenly made better better housing for them they just moved mm -hmm. them to a different place yeah in terms of using it in the film and let me know if this is an unfair comparison to make as much as I, I really, really enjoyed this movie, maybe a weakness is, it reminded me of Attack the Block, how the characters that live in the public housing are the active protagonists in that story. And aside from, I guess, the little kid, there's really uh, nobody who lives in Cabrini Green who is really like an active protagonist within the story is one thing I noticed about I mean, I would, I would disagree on the level of, I think, Anne-Marie's mm -hmm. agency and import is so large that uh, I would say that, like, yes, we see her silence or her rage, but her silence and rage, but, and also even just the importance of her and Anthony is, yeah. is so huge to the story, especially, like, what is that line she said at the beginning like i won't let them get 
get him and she's not talking about Candyman. like she is someone who believes in Candyman, but that's not what she's scared of in the same way that when helen is like i can't believe it took me getting attacked for like anyone to fucking notice what was happening Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know i think that those are some of like the most important structural lines but she's not treated in the same way i say like the janitorial women right whereas like she has a full like story right she is one of the characters that you continue to see personally affected by the ongoing story you know she she and anthony live when helen doesn't and i think that that is one of the most important parts of the story like it is almost the like it is in that way i think that it ties very heavily to attack the block as well you know yeah well and i think also um Anne is really important because she's kind of the one that establishes helen i mean especially as as helen's arc resolves she's the one who sort of creates the 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 narrative of of helen being the sort of next story where she's i mean like, we're in spoilers town so we can you know I, I think we can go ahead and um discuss you know the big twist of this film but um she's the one who basically makes helen a legend at the end yeah because oh, you know yeah. and, and ultimately redeems helen as a character because of, of the choices that helen made at the very end with anthony also when- if she doesn't forgive her Helen ends the story still being considered a possible attempted baby murderer. Mm-hmm. So her forgiveness is like the crux of the legend. Yeah. You know, like, sh- like it is shaped by how she perceives Helen, which I think is very interesting. Now, uh, would I have loved to see a story in which they were equal protagonists? Definitely. I think that there's a lot of meat there, but. I just think about Anne Marie a lot, also because her name, because the actress is Vanessa Williams, but not the singer one, but the <laughs> one who was also in Soul Food, but the TV version, not the movie version, which the singer <laughs> Vanessa Williams was in. I didn't know that. That's, that's, that's a, a lot. Of, that's a lot of neat yeah. overlap. Yeah, it's it's very strange overlap. It comes to the ending of this movie. I had to watch it twice because the first time watching it, I did not catch that Jake only saw the hook going into the pile yeah and from that thought it was Candyman. i thought that he saw it was helen and intentionally (laughs) got everyone to set her to set helen on fire yeah Yeah. Uh, speaking of fire here uh let's talk about this music because it hits right at the beginning uh with this like all these overhead shots of Chicago that they got using something called a sky cam. Cause I was, as I was watching this, I was like, did Bernard Rose just know somebody with a helicopter and they just ran like just flew around shooting Chicago the whole time. Cause there's a lot of overhead shots in this. It's the kind of footage that would be super easy to get in our dystopia 2021 future of drones. But <laughs> in 1992, holy shit how the fuck did they get that footage so the sky cams are the things that they use on on football games now that uh swoop sort of over the top of things so they're uh, like a line they're controlled yeah they're cable suspended and they can maneuver them three-dimensionally that's what they use to do a lot of these but again did did chicago just install those wires on buildings for filmmakers to use like did they have to go about setting up those cables I mean, he he had to do, he did a lot of 
particular work, uh, both with the city and with the NAACP to oh, make nice. this movie. Like he was in like close consultation, like across the board um, to make sure that like he wasn't offending anyone. I mean, also when he talked to the NAACP to like double check things, people just kept being like, well, this is dope. It's perfectly, <laughs> it's, it's not racist if we have a black villain. We have Freddie, that's fine. Uh, um, like if Freddie and people can exist why can't we have a black villain stop talking to us this is dumb uh, <laughs> yeah I, I like that uh, according to his uh, Bernard Rose's own stuff about this he all the people at the NAACP were like no this is this is really cool you did a good job <laughs> good job they're just like why do they keep having you talk to me this is ridiculous yeah and, and apparently <laughs> there was like a lot of people were sort of warning tony todd off of this he's like oh you don't want to be that guy that's associated with this thing and he was like no i, I want to be a fucking cool phantom of the opera like why wouldn't i want to do that and it turns out he was such right a cool role. Yeah. oh my you god his most, his most iconic performance and it was yeah. super unique and super sexy in a way in that for years, like man. it made me feel certain things about bees that i didn't think that i knew how i knew i would feel tony todd will make you feel away yeah i sort of like that we open with this urban legend about um you know the about the candy man which involves you know ted Raimi coming over to a girl's house to be the bad boy that she's sleeping with and then actually uh, did you uh did you guys notice and maybe uh when talking about the sky cam you guys noticed this but the only line in the opening music no, it's well, uh they one second i actually uh, write wrote it down but it's literally like uh they don't care about um about what happens down here it's uh it's so good um they don't give a they they yeah in it's it's a recorded voiceover that's just a single line in the opening music that says they don't give a damn what happened down here down there and it's the only piece piece of uh dialogue in the opening music and it's so good um yeah that is a great dialogue (laughs) i was just like oh oh okay um like watching it again now it's like it was the horror movie equivalent to when black panther starts and they just you just see the 1994 oakland and you understand Mm. immediately just seeing that phrase Mm -hmm. what like oh this is what they're doing this is what we're in for you know Mm -hmm. or like uh you know very pop doing the beginning of uh beyonce's formation Mm-hmm. And like the the uh, big Frida samples at the beginning of that one, mm-hmm. you know, um, just very. Uh, this is like the black cultural thing that we are are doing here. Mm-hmm. This is like kind of establishing that as the baseline, but like with this beautiful or like orchestrated music, and I just love it a lot. Oregon music, like in the violins and the pianos, just amazing. During this urban legend telling with Ted Raimi, and he's making out, and the shirt what comes off. What is wrong off with that girl? What natural? I move. know. What? Talk about a what mutilated is... murder ghost. Listen, <laughs> I've heard of hybristophilia. That's a thing. Some girls like criminals, but you don't have to like. What kind of? 
at that point when she's doing that, I'm like, did you tell him to wear that leather jacket and pretend to be a bad boy? Because you are trying so hard to have issues at this point. <laughs> well, you know, I, I don't usually consider summoning monsters as part of my foreplay. I mean, actually, hmm, now that I think about it. <laughs> I mean, I'm not sure what my reaction to this would be if I was Ted Raimi. And that's more a reflection on me than anything else. But also she finishes it when he's not in the room, which is the most hilarious metaphor that has ever happened in a movie. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that I mean, <laughs> to this film. I'm just like, really? This is what we're doing? Like, you didn't even want or need him there, honestly, at that point. You just... What? She just needed an audience. The real highlight for her was telling her murder ghost story. She just needed an audience and then like to kind of as foreplay and then, you know, off of him. And and then told, and then I he mean, was no. waiting downstairs. Okay. Look, no, Not, no, disrespect to, no disrespect to Ted Raimi, but his competition in this movie is Tony Todd with I that know. voice. Yeah. That's what I'm saying is I'm pretty sure that this girl had seen the Candyman before and she's like, all right. Why don't we mix it up a little bit? Mm -hmm. I'm going to summon the Candyman, and then we can, you know, have a little uh, three-way action. It is uh, funny to me the Tony level Todd and Ted Raimi is a nerdy, nerdy top two for a threesome. No, it's not even a bad say, one. It's just nerdy. No. <laughs> I do want to say before we get too far in this, if people. Uh, I haven't watched this or are going to watch this again uh, i would highly recommend either headphones or surround sound mm -hmm. because the way that this movie is mixed every time the Candyman talks it's everywhere it comes from all sides especially like if he's not in the room um and he's talking to her then like it's just tony todd all the way <laughs> 360 it is unnerving and also uh kind of sexy yeah. He's got a sexy yeah. voice. Um, Once again, he nails that Phantom of the Opera vibe. He's got that coat. Like, it's a great yeah. coat. It's yeah. covering up a big old rib cage full of bees, but it's a great coat. I mean, and if you like humming, if you like white noise, soothing. Tony Todd 360, also what that girl in the opening was into. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, who wouldn't be? That's the special Anderson Cooper ones. Yeah. Um, <laughs> If you guys listen to the end of this episode, we'll be talking about a uh, um, a subscription service called Tony Todd 360. <laughs> um, they're our first. Exactly, a cooking service. Yeah. <laughs> Not what you expect, I guess. Please tell me Tony Todd sponsor. started an ASMR like YouTube channel during the pandemic. I man would be a millionaire. I yeah. Well, I mean, per bee sting. Yep. Right. A thousand dairy. Oh my god! I didn't give him a million per beast thing. I know, but now like that would be a good that contract. many bees. Let's let's talk about Helen and Bernie here, who are researching urban legends, which is is we learn what we've been hearing. This story about Bad Boy Billy is a uh, is being recited to Virginia Madsen, who is playing Helen, uh, who is along with Bernie, who is played by Cassie Lemons. They are researching urban legends. This is one of them. We also hear about you know alligators in the sewers and and things like that. And we also learned that uh, Helen's husband, Trevor, uh, is a professor that uh, has also decided to teach a class about urban legends 
compromising Helen's data without any sort of remorse. Trevor sucks, and he's always going to. Yeah, he's the fucking worst. The line that he has in this scene that sets off every red flag is just when he goes, after all that, so don't be mad at me. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's Xander Berkeley. Berkeley. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say, um, <laughs> if anyone tells you in any any piece of media to not like Xander Berkeley's character, don't think it's a red herring. You're not supposed to like Xander Berkeley's character. Yeah. I love him for that. He's got such a handsome, unlikable face, like simultaneously, <laughs> and it's very, very baffling. He's One like, of- you're right, you're handsome. But also, I can't stand you. One of Hollywood's great unlikable faces. But it's not a villain. It's just unlikable. Like, it's not so extreme that it's a villain. He's not the villain. He's the overbearing boss that gets in the protagonist's way. Uh Somehow worse than the villain in this movie. Like, Candyman is very likable. Uh, this husband, Trevor, is the goddamn worst. Let us yeah. be real. There is a love triangle between Helen, Trevor, and Candyman, and Trevor comes out looking the worst in that love triangle. Yeah, worse than the guy w- with bees for a body and a hook for a hand. All he had to do was be a reasonable human being. Like, that's the thing. Like, yeah. at first, you're like, oh, it's not like... Not be made of bees. <laughs> like, <laughs> All you had first... to do was not be made of bees. <laughs> You couldn't even do that. Shit. Like, there's a, a whole kind of just vibe. Okay, yeah, even if he is cheating on her at the beginning, right? Like, they set up this whole thing where we kind of know, yeah, but there's this already that gaslighting there, right? But you, you've you seen that a bunch, right? But then he gets less and less... He gets worse and worse as the whole thing goes on, right? Yeah, like, every decision he makes... There. And, I do have yeah. to ask. This class he's teaching, is this a graduate or an undergraduate class? I'm pretty sure it's undergrad. According to... Oh, that's so much worse. That's so much worse. He's talking about their adolescent hormones. There is so much wrong with these writers' understanding of college. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I feel like the school board would have something to say about a professor openly like having a freshman move in with him. Uh, At that point, actually, there's a... It's only in like one or two lines, but this actually takes place over the course of several months. So we're not actually sure if he's still teaching her. But he is married to a grad student that is working at that college. Yeah. Yeah. She. This is definitely think... some old boy shit. The administrators are fucking looking out for Trevor. This I get the sense the also that she top. was probably one of his students, like that he's oh, repeating yeah. oh, a yeah. cycle. And Absolutely. Like, so here's so the thing, he is, is such a, <laughs> like, he is such a slime ball, but also, and normally I'm like, I'm of that camp of, well, being, being the other woman is a shitty choice to make, but also you have not pledged loyalty to the other woman, except that she moves in a month after this woman is institutionalized, less yeah. than a month. And she, at that point, it goes from being like a manipulated, like she's still a manipulated younger woman. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But at that point, followed by the silent being pissed off that he's traumatized that his ex-wife who went through all of that shit before she died is dead and she is mad at him about it too. Like the level of both of these individuals being the absolute worst I, is just yeah. really high. I well, Stacey- honestly thought Stacy was also going to die just based on satisfaction how- level. 
Well, really, yeah. Again, just based on all the ways the movie went out of its way to be like, we don't need to make her the worst, but she's the worst. The point where it's like, oh, I wouldn't feel like she's a victim of Trevor's sleaziness if she did get hurt. See, the yeah, thing is, just... I also feel like the fact that they that they give you her painting the apartment before you see Trevor, I think is an indication that the director did actually want you to think that she was the one. But it's only at that point, like at before that, where like there's the kind of gaslighting element to it, where you're not supposed to be sure and they keep her kind of mostly off screen. Mm-hmm. Aside from that beginning, where you're like, oh, she, but then like her full commitment to his shittery. Like, even if I was the other woman in that situation, you you just saw everything that just happened. Why would you move in with that man? Like, he's gonna leave you. Like, that's not even like a you met that dude. When like, he's <laughs> sighing in exasperation at his trauma at his ex-wife's violent death. Uh, that to me was a real like, oh, you two fucking deserve each other. I mean, the, the, the abusive relationships, um, I mean, there's a lot to unpack there, especially with the, the age gap and um, the amount of grooming that I'm certain went on with this <laughs> with this relationship with this. More young... than a little, I bet. Uh-huh. Mm. Um, so, you know, I I feel like Stacy for me, Stacey... Um, you know, is is not great, but I also have trouble vilifying her because of that. And I feel like there's the way that she's depicted is a little so is a little ham fisted. So it kind of goes again. I mean, when we talk about uh, social issues, which we're kind of talking about throughout, but the 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 Stacy situation, the way it's depicted, especially towards the end of the film, uh, really kind of demerits the feminism of the of this movie. Um, especially how she's like walking around without a bra on and we're like okay so you know her rocket nipples are out and like she's just like i'm gonna wave a knife around and be pissy about my husband's trauma or my i don't know if they're married at that point no, definitely not oh yeah she's so you know about, at that point yeah i sincerely that my, hope not for real i mean i don't know how much time went by after the funeral and all that kind of stuff brought her to the funeral i was so angry i know they did it at the funeral they got married at the funeral (laughs) yeah (laughs) she's only at the church for one day i I will say stacy's not a villain she's a real shit sandwich though (laughs) yeah she's not i will uh i will say that like and i know that this might be like an arguable perspective but i also don't necessarily see this movie as particularly generally feminist yeah i think that there is and i don't necessarily think that it's trying to be strongly feminist either i think that it's more focused on the class and race absolutely uh, with the feminist element being the tale of gaslighting yeah but like i i feel like there are lots of particular choices where also if even if she was dead at the end of the feminist, like full feminist version of this movie, right? Mm-hmm. Like she doesn't kill his way, right? Like I think if this was making like a feminist or if it was intentionally making feminist points, I think it makes feminist points, but not necessarily intentionally. Yeah. Like she would become her own myth as opposed to like a shared myth. Yeah, no, I think I, I definitely agree that it's not really, it's the, the story isn't about feminism. Yeah. And, um, you know, the, one would be tempted 
to read feminism or to, you know, to try to find feminism in there because of the fact that you have, you know, these main protagonists all being women. Um, but there's also um, a lot of uh, agency that's taken away from the uh, Helen as a protagonist. Um, and yeah, there's, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's I really think, not about that. I think a more feminist take on the movie might've been one that focused uh, more on Anne Marie and mm-hmm. gave her more of a spotlight. Um, but like I said, it seems like Helen goes through a lot of uh, tropes or character arcs that we've seen that are very famous, like really just like the hysterical woman thrown into the uh, mental hospital is is a trope that this movie kind of plays straight. I mean, yeah. but, I do, but but does it though because not, as well, as the audience we know that it's real yeah 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 and i guess more just like i guess it's more i don't know it, just all those like that those choices just make me feel like the same like how you say about like it doesn't feel like a particularly feminist movie it like it just it's comfortable playing with those devices i guess definitely anti-toxic like masculinity in yeah. academia like there yeah. are zero mm-hmm. good adult yes. dudes in this movie um like uh, no none of the dudes are good um like, i also think there's an argument for a, a feminist approach where bernadette is more of a part of it and it becomes more about their friendship yeah uh, like and i liked bernadette like bernadette like, having been from there instead of being like the like the black woman who's like very removed from the only black community we see here or on the flip side giving her her own black community that isn't cabrini yeah you know like uh either of those approaches i think could have been like you know just like the Anne marie like i think that i'll let like a story that used them as like a trio kind of like anchoring the story yeah you know because there's a lot of use of like the kid jake who for a kid actor when this like in the early 90s is doing a bang up job he's solid oh yeah everything like that he does he's awesome and marie could do <laughs> like yeah like on like a real writing level aside from wanting a kid there mo- almost every scene with him could have been done with Anne marie yeah 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 I, I think and i think the thing that's interesting to me about this especially with helen is that um throughout and this this is with Bernie. This is with Jake, the kid. This is with Anne Marie. Uh, she consistently disregards black people's opinions about things. She does uh-huh. not listen when anybody warns her. She does not listen when Jake says, "Hey, if I talk to you, I could get hurt. Like, yeah. you know, they're gonna get me." He, she doesn't pay attention to that. She keeps like head. pushing Bernie into worse and worse situations. Um, and it's, I, the movie doesn't draw attention to it, but like, it's consistent and, uh, like, just, I, I think, you know, it's, it's part of the character, but it's, it's something that, uh, is, is interesting to me because they, uh, because it, it does exist and it is real. Um, <laughs> and yeah. you know, it's, it's throughout the whole thing. So it's kind of going back a little bit in terms of Bernadette being a little under you utilized and let me know if this is um off base or whatnot uh but for a movie so interested in talking about race and class and the intersection of that 
not pairing up um even for like a scene or an interaction really like Anne Marie and Bernadette to explore a different slice of that Venn diagram felt like a little bit of a missed opportunity. Yeah. I think Bernadette and this is coming from the angle of let's uh, ignoring the sequels because the sequel plot was not established yet. Mm -hmm. um, that Bernadette should have been related to sweets and that's like, like have an actual connection to that storyline uh, again and making sure you do like a more equivalent uh, like protagonist thing, but like a, in connection to then what Jeremy was saying as well, you then have this whole story, which is really about white feminism, right? Because you have Helen literally engaging with the black community with the same gaslighting that she's experiencing from every white man in the movie. Mm -hmm. I mean, as Helen... like a, as a cycle, right? Like, so as they're all saying everything's fine, everything's okay, she turns to every black person and says everything's fine, everything's okay. Uh, and what's interesting though is to a certain extent, even when she sort of suspects her husband is having an affair, right? Up to a certain, there's actually a chunk of the movie where she just accepts that he's probably not, right? Yeah. Like she doesn't comment on it when he comes in at three in the morning, although you, the audience knows, right? Yeah. So mm -hmm. like she actually, to a certain extent, becomes wrapped up in the gaslighting where literally even the black people who go along with her the whole time are like, we know you're wrong, but like now you've started this. So we all have to see it to the end because we can't stop you. Yeah. You know, um, because now there's again, a white woman in the projects here. And what does that mean for us? Yeah. And not to mention the like, wild hubris of deciding to do a folklore ethnological study on a like on a black community that like you're not engaging directly with but are like studying as if they uh, were you know are a dead civilization or people that don't speak the same language as you like that entire the entire way that she interacts with Cabrini Green in this movie just sets off alarm bells for me Oh it's, my God. Yeah. It's so, it's yeah. so funny to me yeah. because some of it is like caused by horror movie exposition needs. Right. Yeah. So like you have to have her unveiling or discovering, right. Like the mythology at the beginning. Um, I, for example, don't necessarily uh, read the scene in which uh, the white guy is telling her the history as her actually not knowing it i i read it as oh he's just gonna keep talking so i'm gonna keep letting him go because she doesn't react but like in general like it's this whole setup right where she where the exposition needs means that she is just now uncovering the connection which seems really really blatant yeah well it seems not very good at actually researching things yeah, and well, then she's she's sort of jumping in, and I thought that was interesting about that whole scene. I mean, there's a lot of things, especially when you talk about the the um, British like asshole McDouchebag uh, professor, who we the first we see of this guy is him being horribly racist about um, Native Americans. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. And then he's he's basically mansplaining her because she's like, oh, we're going to we're going to make a, a you know, we're going to have this paper and we're just going to burn your ass and all this kind of stuff. You know, and there's all this uh, academic competition. And he's like, oh, of course, you got to blah, blah, blah. There's a story of, of, you know, the whole 
background story. And then after he does that, that happens before she goes in there and treats this community of people like they are, um, you know, like a, like a lost civilization or, you know, like they're, it's an anthropological study where she is so like above them, you know, in it, her own narrative. It feels so peak white feminism that her redemption is saving baby Anthony from the danger he's only in because she came in and meddled. And she became a literal white savior. Uh, because I mean, if we want to get into the way her mural replaced Candyman's mural, now we're getting into art gentrification. Yeah, there's a lot. I mean, there's so much to, or maybe to I'm unpack. Just talking nonsense. No, no, you got a good point. It's valid because this movie has such like there's. I feel like this movie tries to throw too much in there that could kind of dilutes the message, because Helen's whole story for me is you know. You ignore the problems of this community. You become the problem of this community. So she essentially, Candyman possesses her or whatever, you know, you know, she blacks out, whatever. And then she becomes the, um, the, the horrible thing that she was like, wow, this is up before, you know, trying to be super woke. And then, you know, suddenly she's the problem and she doesn't understand any of it. And she's, she's like completely aware, even though she's like killing the shit out of people. Um, including her black best friend. So is she, um, does, does her mural replace, or I thought she was added to it because he's still part of the legend at that point, because the whole point is that the whole neighborhood saw him. So they, they make like the point that she has been added to that legend, which gave it strength. Yeah. I mean, I can't remember what was in that, that focal was sort of like a, um, hearth area. Yeah, because they do a close-up, but I thought that the close-up was where the original white girl's face was. So I thought it was like it had changed and she was more like dominating it, but I might be remembering wrong. Well, she at the very end, that image of her was different from her like being sort of a cameo in that painting or in that mural, because in the mural she was there like as the um, the woman um from the story and then at the very very end they kind of zoom in on her and she's now like this Joan of Arc looking like saint on fire where she's like reaching for the sky and there's like all this light and then like she's coming out of the fire like she's right. being yeah but I thought that that was added to it that it didn't erase his part okay yeah I'm not sure actually yeah, because also because also I feel visually if you were going to do that you don't replace that you replace the mouth and I think yeah. that it's very important. Mm. And I think that it is intention because also the idea of his whole plan, because he fully wins, like 100% wins at the end of this movie, yeah. is that he wanted the neighborhood to see him and they saw him, therefore confirming to this entire neighborhood that he exists, but then folding her in to give himself more power. Yeah. Which is like a weird, complicated thing. It's still plays with that whole like in order to personally win her story she becomes this massive threat <laughs> to this black community so i yeah. still think it works in with what you were saying um it's just like this kind of weird situation where she has won the day in her personal story and i think it makes sense that she doesn't understand the way in which she did that and it's like, it's weird because now everyone in the projects believe in Candyman, 
but they also believe in the fact that she helped them defeat him. So they're like safe from him because which makes sense when you consider, I think, the implication that he didn't do the first half of he had nothing to do with the first murders at all. Yeah. Yeah. Like he literally only 44 minutes and 30 seconds, because I always time where where the the, the named threat shows up in movies, because I I think they always show up a lot later than we expect, especially in older movies, um, mm-hmm. is that he only become he is not involved at all. Like until she starts telling people that he doesn't exist and they have a, a, a physical flesh and blood and person to link to his name. Like so that yeah. he kind of lives on in the threat of him. And then the second she's removed the threat, then he actually starts doing the killings. At least that's the way I've always read it. Yeah, that's how I understood it, that the um that the, the gang leader going around calling himself Candyman did all of the initial murders and then that fueled the rumor of like the legend of Candyman and then when she removed the physical threat it took away the power of Candyman so he had to then go direct and again make her the victim to perpetuate the the legend so yeah i think i think i think that's uh, the right way to interpret it. I think that we have it. Yeah. So basically, like, he was. Do we think that he was possessing the um, the Overlord kid? I don't think he. Need- no. I was actually thinking about this heavily. That I would yeah. love to like do a, like a novella or something in which he's manipulated situations to do it. But mm-hmm. I think at that point, the point is his hold and belief, and the belief in him is so strong he wouldn't need to. Right. That the idea is that a gang leader, Candyman, was inspired by the fact that everyone already feared that name. Yeah, it right. becomes that self-perpetuating cycle where the fear of the legend inspires the gang leader to take the guys, which then further fuels that, fear of the legend. I think the, the only person that we know for sure died from Candyman-related stuff is Ruthann. Um and it's you know it, it's unclear how that even came to be. I think you know we could it could be Candyman, it could be the you know gang leader calling himself Candyman. They make very clear that you know somebody anybody could have busted into her place from behind that mirror. Like yeah, it'd be very easy to do. And you know as long as they hit her with a hook, then it looks like Candyman did it. Burke was definitely Candyman. Candyman killed the shit out of Burke. Yeah. And and she, you know, we do get Helen saying Candyman in the mirror like five times at the beginning. So theoretically, yeah. at any point from then on, Candyman is with her um, until, you know, he decides to show up and do something about it. And Bernie says psych, which I'm really happy to see in a film. <laughs> Whenever someone says psych in a movie, and I, I just can point to that and be like, look, it was real. <laughs> I'm talking to my, you know, friend who's 23 or whatever. And I'm I didn't make this up. Also, yeah. I know it's not necessarily a storytelling trope, but I do like to take a drink for every time we watch a 90s man smoking in a restaurant. And in a classroom. The classroom smoking kind of threw me a little bit. I, I was like smoking all the time. Yeah. That's how you show someone is thinking. You're yeah. Thinking did you, did you like literally like that's but like intense thought, especially in this movie, but like everything and like the five years plus or minus here is really like how you show someone is intensely thinking by having a cigarette. Yeah. I mean, that's how they did in the hunger. 
And we, we've covered a lot of this, you know, they, she gets the story from the janitor ladies about Candyman. It's still very much an urban legend at that point because she has to go get her friend and her friend has a cousin who knew somebody that so on and so forth, um, which is, is established kind of as the, the modus operandi of, of Candyman and urban legends in general. Um, there's a there's a bit in their story that I think is very important where they talk about calling 911 and nobody believes them. Um, so, you know, I wanted to highlight that because that's sort of the the b- building the momentum of the um, the classism and racism themes uh, that we have going on. Yeah. And then from this story, Helen learns about, you know, Cabrini Green and decides to drag her friend Bernie out there to investigate this. Bernie is the whole time not wanting to do this, telling her they shouldn't go in a dead woman's apartment uh, without, you know, some kind of permission. They don't know who's there. They shouldn't go through the mirror. They shouldn't do all this stuff. And she doesn't listen to anybody. Uh, and this is also where they meet. Um, Helen, listen to people that know better. She would never. No. Yeah, they they yeah. meet the, the gangsters out in front who, you know, think they're cops so they don't mess with them. They see all the uh, tags that say sweet, sweets for the sweet. Um, they nearly get attacked by uh, a very angry dog. Um, and she finds an altar full of sweets with razor blades inside of them, inside this uh, hidden room. And they finally meet Anne Marie McCoy. Which do we ever really? Do we ever get an explanation of any kind for the candy blades with razors? Not in this movie. No. Yeah, I, I do I know they're using the that as backstory for the new one. So maybe that that's explained. Yeah, in the we trailer we don't learn why his name is Candyman. We don't learn what the deal is with the candy or the razor blades. We don't learn where the sweets for the sweet came from. Well, I, do, I always movie. assumed the candy man and sweets for the sweets. That was because it was like covered in honey. Yeah. yeah. Like, so I, yeah, honey. I also think specifically at the time this movie was made, you wouldn't need to explain the razor blades. Yeah. Because was... that's just a tie in for urban legends where every year we still have that but at the time it was very much considered a real thing that could happen at large yeah Yeah. uh so they wouldn't explain that because any parent watching it would be like we always have to open and check your candy i remember my parents specifically doing that uh, inspecting my candy for razor Uh, blades on halloween night we only uh in fact went trick-or-treating inside my building in the projects we would go up to the 20th floor and go down because my parents could trust those people's candy we did not go outside to other buildings because then they would have to check but like my family grew up in that in that projects building and so if we just walked the whole building and got candy it was safe see my family had the rural version of that which was uh we were far enough into the country that there weren't enough places that we could walk to safely. So <laughs> they would drive us to an actual like nice neighborhood and drop us off to to get candy and pick us up at the end of the street. I have yeah. no good story. My childhood Halloweens were very picturesque. I don't remember the the candy being checked, but I remember there was a general concern because it was not just the candy, but you know, or, or not just the uh, the razor blades, but there was also concerns about drugs. There was concerns about like any number of things, poison. Yeah. You know, um, but the razor blade thing was very specific to that time. So, yeah. you know, when I saw that, I was like, oh, OK. <laughs> In my neighborhood, uh, we had a big log that fell. So every year we dressed it up like a dragon and then we had a big party with apple cider. Oh, nice. I just have wholesome <laughs> Halloween stories. I mean, yeah. my Halloweens were very, very wholesome. 
because we kept in the projects. Yeah. Uh, which is like, that's also a thing I think that is interesting. Obviously, it's not as strong with this because Anne-Marie and, and other people are are afraid of the gangs in their environment, but also contextually, I think that there's an important part that within the projects, when you're growing up, the inner threat is different from the outer threat in mm -hmm. that if you are part of the community, generally speaking, and you are not part of the gang violence, you are substantially at a lesser threat than an outsider coming in. Yeah, That was my yeah. childhood, right? Like, that my family was kind of like, oh, that's so-and-so's kid, you know, like, it's whatever, and they don't bother you, you know, like, there is, there is a, a real kind of sense of that within a community, and so uh, this, that's another reason why I'm like, it would have been really interesting if Bernadette was connected to Cabrini or connected to Sweets, because having someone who is both part of Helen's world and part of Candyman's world, I think, would be, would have been really interesting because they have a, a different sense of the world, you know, like yeah. or Anne Marie being the sort of person who, you know, I get why they have the dog visually, right? Like it is it is something to to like symbolize both Helen's fear and all of these threats, and also to terrify you later, right? Mm -hmm. But also, I don't think Anne Marie would actually have that dog if there was anything or like. Rather, she would not have a dog because she was scared of the gang members. That was, for me, the least believable part of the movie that kind of breaks the reality for me. Mm -hmm. Because if she just had a baby and she's like a nurse or whatever, she's probably chill. Like, they probably don't mess with her. Like, they're like, nah, like, leave Anne-Marie alone. Like, why are you bothering her? You know, like, yeah. and there's very much that sense. And especially with the baby, no one's going to, target her with the baby when the baby isn't even like he would have to be like around like 12 or so before it's like yo are you joining up or not right like yeah. in a real sense um but like so like that was a really interesting dynamic like this understanding that like so much of the threat comes because of that are you a cop moment because yeah. of that them coming helen coming in and interfering. yeah i think that's something that like attack the block gets that this movie doesn't is that like and attack the block like moses says like oh we wouldn't have messed with you if you knew if we knew you lived here like yeah we yeah you know, we don't know you and that's that's why we mess with you but like we don't we don't mess with because we we here. don't know if you're a threat right yeah not just like you know gang territory but like outsiders there's so much threat to the community, mm -hmm. you know, it's like down to that whole concept of, you know, the, the newcomers show up and then they're calling the cops on noise complaints, which gets yeah. someone hurt or in, or in danger. Right. And it's just some kids, you know, I think of, you know, all the stuff that I did that wasn't considered a quote bad thing when I was a kid, you know, like the you know my building had terraces you know and so like birthday parties on the terrace were regular you know like you would just you know plug in stuff with a giant you know surge protector from your apartment to the terrace and how some people still do those but like now there's a lot lock on the door now a lot of those aren't allowed you know because of as new people come in not even to the building but the nearby neighborhood they take different quote precautions yeah well, it, it seems like it's a um, 
like an outside like the unknown threat versus the known threat for right. the, the situation and the um one of them has rules screen. yeah like when you know <laughs> it's predictable like yeah. you know the rules of uh of candy man right yeah like you don't have to worry about like if you don't apply the rules then like there's going to be a problem like nah but like this white woman shows up and suddenly none of the rules apply in the same way right because everyone else suffers for her breaking the rules yeah yeah she literally goads him into coming into physical existence um poor jake jake just like he just has his innocence shattered by helen helen lied to him jake's just trying to mind his own business get by yeah um like yeah, we, we meet Ruthie Ann, or we meet, uh, you know, Anne, Anne Marie says she heard, you know, everything that was going on with Ruthie Ann. She heard, you know, her screaming and die, and nobody nobody came to do anything about it. Um, yeah, and uh, this, this is where we again get to meet uh, Helen's shitty professor, advisor, douche, whatever it is he does, who mocks them and then uh, expositions the story of Candyman at them. Um, and we learn that he is, you know, the son of a slave who uh, was a painter and was hired to paint this, you know, white girl and supposedly uh, slept with her and then was uh, chased out and had his arms sawn off and replaced with a hook, which why you do that, I don't know. Um, the replaced with a hook part seems like you're, you're arming this person uh, and then covered him in uh, broken beehives with, uh, with honeycomb so that the bees would sting him to death. Um, Candyman's got a lot of things. I mean, think about that. So like, I was, I was trying to justify it to myself, like the hook thing. Yeah. And there was a, like a couple of there was a couple of things that came to mind. One, uh, the fact that he's an artist, so yeah, they took right. his 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 painting hand, but yeah. also it uh, it removes the hands in which not only removes the hand that got to tenderly touch his lover, but makes it so that it would harm her. Yeah. Yeah. That, um, that makes sense. It also connects him to this sort of other urban legend because he is sort of a combination of urban legends. He's got a lot of things going on. He's got the hook and we always hear the, you know, urban legend about the couple in the, uh, in the car and the guy with the hook hand. Um, yeah. He's also got the bees. He's got the, uh, you know, saying his name in the mirror, which is, you know, taken from Bloody Mary. Um, which, which urban legend has the bees? Because bees are kind of new to me. Other than, bees I mean, are I, the I, urban legend. I mean, I just, I just think of the urban legend of Swarm, the Marvel Comics character, who is a Nazi made of bees. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's a, I guess that's a legend. I don't know yeah. if it's urban. Man, I can't wait for that character to get his own Disney Plus show. Also, also for bees, um, with the Egyptians, uh, they were part of guiding uh, the dead to the afterlife. Mm. Oh, oh, I didn't. Oh my god! Yeah, but he's got the mirror, the hook, the coat, the bees, the candy. The mental projection powers, the floating. Uh, There's a lot of things that are full of bees in this movie, but I think the one that's really going to haunt my nightmares for the rest of my life is the toilet full of bees. 
Yeah, because that's in this next scene because she she decides to that she needs to put this small child Jake in danger and makes him show her the uh, the scary outhouse full of bees with oh the bee toilet. Helen, you're so selfish. The, yeah, well, I I had forgotten that the the um, asshole McDouchebag professor was kind of sandwiched in between Helen going out there and being an asshole herself. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean the the fact that we get this juxtaposition of him and then she continues to do this and she bullies this kid. She bullies Jake. She straight up like um, coerces this kid to be like, Hey, put yourself in danger for me, you know, so I can what write a fucking thesis. Yeah. Hey, that's why yeah. I was only a little confused the first time. Cause I'm like, well, I guess he has reason to try to burn her alive. <laughs> yeah. Before I went back, I was like, "Oh, he thought it was she was Candyman." Okay, that makes the story of a of a small child uh, having his dick ripped off by the Candyman, which um, Jesus, I don't really, yeah, that holy fuck. I was gonna say this. Didn't like that earlier. I was talking about like this movie fucking goes places and it does. It doesn't fucking. It doesn't fuck around. That shit, like you talk about Jake's innocence, like that story uh, was a lot. Yeah, I guess it's. I guess he's all the urban legends. He's also, you know, the snake in the toilet, right? <laughs> like, so even, yeah, and, I al- and he almost said he pretty much says that. Yeah. He is I, he he pretty much says I am like a compilation of all of the rumors and fears, and the more they fear me, the more they come up with stories and add to me. Yeah. Like at this he's this point, 2021, he might have a mech. We don't know. <laughs> he might have a rocket pack and yeah. be a Mothman. If that was if that kill was like actual Candyman, well, we need to summon him and be like, "Hey, Candyman, the fuck." Yeah, that one is just a story. We have no evidence that that happened. Movie, it's just a story that she, that he heard about another boy. Is uh, it? I thought that that was one of the ones uh, that they attribute at some point, but I could be wrong about that. Well, they do have the bees. Um, yeah, I mean, this is, it's, this is where she gets attacked by. The gang leader with the hook hand or you know with the the hook calling himself Candyman, um who beats the crap out of her apparently in the uh extended edition i guess the unrated version uh this scene is a lot longer of, of her getting the crap beat out of her and kicked while she's on the floor but in the normal rated version of it she just gets hit with the hook and goes down and we don't see anything else in hindsight knowing everything she knows now going around insinuating she was a cop directly asking for the local gang leader maybe not the wisest strategy yeah she didn't have all the information but in the hindsight being 2020 not a great plan oh yeah well yeah i mean we can all agree that hindsight um what that indicates about she should have had current sight really she was just (laughs) everyone told her she saw evidence she went in there being like i know folks get murdered and she was like it's cool bernadette literally says we're dressed like cops that's a bad idea and then she goes no see it's cool because they think we're cops when bernadette just said that that was a bad idea yeah yeah she's like oh good they think we're cops they won't follow us and i'm like what and even and bernadette gives her the look when they say that she's cops she literally goes see i told you they're gonna think we're cops and now we're gonna get in trouble there's a reason helen has to go back by herself the next time because bernadette ain't having any of that um 
the fact that she goes i mean even like before she goes back to harass jake helen goes Again, in poor there jake. poor this, jake but helen goes in there with bernie hardcore and, child yeah and then like starts crawling through these spooky ass rooms that like i mean <laughs> i love that that's that's the point like helen starts going through this hole behind the mirror and she's like come on and bernie's like no fuck you i'm staying here yeah. and i'm gonna yeah, put your like, been... i'm gonna put your coat over the toilet so i can sit on it <laughs> but you're, i'm gonna put my ass on your coat because you're getting your tweed all up in this fucking meth area or whatever that i you know for what it looks like here um but it's goes- also great because it's such a it's a continuation of when she was in the bathroom right like yeah. earlier on is that it's just she kept going through the mirror yeah i have to ask for all the rooms that helen goes in and out of in this structure is Anne marie's apartment the only door that she actually goes through <laughs> it's all just like holes and walls and ceiling basically yeah i think so yeah because like there's Anne marie's apartment and then the rest of that whole like uh block i think there's the... a door into ruthie ann's apartment which they, yeah, they go door. into there's but... a door in there and then all of the apartments adjacent to ruthie uh oh no no, no. i was thinking of yeah um yeah there's like that whole complex is just yeah they talked about it specifically it's they they wanted it to look like uh, a cathedral to Candyman that they yeah. had sort of made out there. Oh, that um, Clive Barker shit was like all over. I was like, I see you, Clive. Also, speaking of Clive Barker shit, this is um, where we we introduced Chekhov's bonfire. Um, yes, it's like there's a big pile of wood and scrap outside, which is the one leftover from this being a British uh, story because. In the original story, that's a like a bonfire for Guy Fox Day. Guy Fox Day, uh, yeah. There's a bonfire there for that reason in that story, and there's there's no reason for there to be a bonfire outside <laughs> of this place, uh, other than you know it's just I guess random scrap they've thrown out there. Never a bad reason for a good old bonfire. Well, I I love that like she's like, oh, are you having a bonfire? And Jake is like, yeah, for the party, you know, like whatever, lady, <laughs> sure. <laughs> bonfire sure okay yeah okay uh so yeah she gets her ass kicked by some gangsters and uh then ids them to the cops um and the cops really congratulate her on what a good job she's done that's uh, that's really where community tony todd now enters the scene because now that she has dispelled the legend of candy man candy man's gotta re-legend that because all she's done is bring the cops into the projects literally thanks helen you're the you're the best (laughs) (laughs) Um, bernie gives the recovered pictures to her which is uh the the last thing before we actually get the introduction of tony todd because she they're in the parking structure and uh bernie gives her that and then drives off past her and then she spends a long time getting into the back of her car as uh tony todd starts melodically talking to her from across the parking structure it's very hypnotic it's captivating and also when with these scenes with them this very deliberate romantic soft filter like dracula like this is bella lugosi dracula hypnotism like this is straight this is these are these are those uh that's it's that cinematography exactly he had a hypnotist on set yeah really Mm mm-hmm 
That's yeah, there's, awesome. Uh, there's some interesting well, there stuff goes about Mike. Bernie Rose in the making say, of this movie. Yeah. I was going to say, no, that's just what happens when Tony Todd speaks. <laughs> that shit. Yeah. Well, yeah. No, like, he, everything becomes soft and only your eyes yeah. are illuminated. The hypnotism was actually uh, uh, a film response to the fact that he thinks screams are overused in movies. And so rather than having her scream and react loudly, uh, they were doing hypnotism and from what i could gather from the reading i think they actually did hypnotism before the scenes it was real weird yeah the, the, she, it she, seems as if he actually had her hypnotized so on set it's really That's bizarre. Yeah. he had her hypnotized and apparently she was not comfortable with it so they stopped doing it yeah <laughs> like they because it worked ass did it oh my yeah. Holy also shit. Also, my, my favorite other fact Incredible. was that uh, oh at least God. they stopped it, which is better than some horror directors that we could name on yeah, this planet who wouldn't. Yeah, oh, he, he's no longer on this planet. So, well, I, I did appreciate that uh, he also had uh, Tony Todd and Michelle Madsen take uh, ballroom dancing classes together so that they would uh, gain a romantic chemistry in these scenes. Um, that was wild. <laughs> it worked. It's the it's some real horny ass scenes. <laughs> and and I, all the, every time he's like gutting somebody, he's like, Ugh, Ugh. this, <laughs> like this has to be one of, if not the horniest movie we've covered on this podcast. Uh, it's, it's pretty horny. I mean, without like, being try hard about it, I yes, think that good that's horny. The okay. This is the good, yes. good horny. Yeah. Now, I mean, I do want to take this opportunity to say that, uh, according to the producers, uh, the other person they had originally considered for the role of Candyman was Eddie Murphy, um, <laughs> which I feel like would have a very different vibe. That's that's a wildly different movie. Yeah, I'm not saying it's even... a bad movie, but it's they a couldn't very afford different. him, so then we got the good version. Uh, apparently, they went for Tony Todd because Eddie Murphy was too short. <laughs> I... <laughs> he, he didn't. He's like five nine or something, and Tony Todd's like six four. So now the short movie that I want to see is the five minute improv like insult comedy that Eddie Murphy would have come up with on the spot when the contract negotiation had gotten to a thousand dollars per bee sting. Oh no. Also, I just wanted to say if Madsen hadn't uh, done the role, cause she actually stepped in uh, to the role because it was originally um, uh, Rose's wife, but then she got pregnant. Hmm. Uh, she had actually auditioned for Bernadette's role and before they decided that Bernadette was going to be black, which is the right choice to go, um, that they had been considering asking Sandra Bullock to play this role. And I think that now you have that stuck in your head and you can't unsee it. And Unknown, Eddie Murphy. Can you imagine this movie with <laughs> Eddie Murphy, Candyman, and Sandra Bullock, Helen? This sounds Once. like an SNL parody sketch, is what this sounds like. It sure does. <laughs> oh, boy, that would have been something else. Um, Eddie Murphy is two inches taller than her. I just double-checked. You're welcome. Eddie you. Murphy talking about being the writing on the wall. And shit. Well, here's the thing. Uh, he wouldn't have even said that stuff because Tony Todd was so involved in the, in the elements, like down to like costume design and things like that. That like I don't think that a lot of those lines would have existed. Really? Uh, yeah, he was part of helping, like figuring out the design. Like as far as I could figure out, like even the the hook was something that happened in in concept build, like design build for uh, 
Candyman more so than the than the than like the script. He deserves so much credit because this it truly is one of the absolute iconic performances of horror cinema. Yeah. And there's there's so many like, interesting I, I choices that, that go into that Candyman look that make it good. Like the fact that he has a constantly bloody stump at the end of that hook, and mm-hmm. um, the fact that you know he has that whole rib cage full of bees when they open the coat, and then the coat itself is so like distinct and iconic. Yeah, it's a great ass coat. Yeah, no, he's also very necessary for being an urban legend in Chicago. I would think. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Also, oh my gosh, I don't know how I missed this when reading, you know, the various uh, Wikipedia summaries and stuff. The same, the team who worked on the bonfire for the set was the same team who did backdraft. (laughs) 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 It's just the fire and the bees were done by legends. Yeah. I would hope so. I like to think they just started recognizing each other. Like, you doing your bees? Like, yeah, you doing some fire? Like, you know it. Then they high-fived. At, uh, it says its largest section was 70 feet wide and 30 feet high. Damn. They, they, were, they, they were just doing some George Romero Mad Maxing in that fire. Just all or nothing. It's a that, crazy bonfire. It's, and that it's scene, fire. The whole it's fire so scene good. is pretty fucking I'm good still not exactly sure I understand the mechanics of aha, I defeated Candyman by poking him in his bee belly. Uh, or maybe that's just how Candyman wanted it to be to create the new evolving legend. Be- bees yeah, he like wins. Fire. He's he's not defeated yeah. at all. Uh, but enough of basically like that end is a uh, a contract of now all he needed to win was everyone to see him and to be like, this is Candyman. This is not like some random flesh and blood person. That's all he wants in this movie is for everyone to go, yup, he's real again. So yeah. he's won. Like, he, like, he's, he's full, he's more powerful at the end of this movie than he was at the beginning because there's more evidence of his ex- His like, belly will become more full of bees. He's yeah. out Freddy, Freddy at the end of this um yeah, he and it's also the 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 fact that the story is added to. It's not just you know the symbolic defeat, you know these people coming together. But it's it's interesting because when you first see Candyman talking, he's talking about this congregation, and it seems kind of out of left field because we're talking about an urban legend, and then he's like, "Oh yes, I have a congregation," like he's you know like a god, um, or a you know. I mean, he is a mythological figure, but that's not how people usually consider the figures of urban legends, you know, that they're some sort of um, God figure or, you know, like something that is uh, worshipped in that, you know, or like an organized way. But in this scene, the entire community comes together and basically makes a sacrifice to him. Um and, you know, otherwise it's, it's, you know, these sort of odd urban legends that don't really constitute something that, you know, what he would be talking about, like this, this uh, godhood, um, his cathedral and everything. And it's like kind of an accidental like offering, right? Because mm-hmm. essentially what's happening there is they're very much doing this, the uh, Frankenstein, you know, burn the monster mode. But by engaging in the burning of the monster, they just make him more real. 
Yeah. Um, I this might be a road down absolute nonsense pants, but you'll go with me for a second. Strapping in. Even though it's 1992, I think Candyman might be the first millennial horror <laughs> villain. Violence, no body, only vibing. He's horny on Maine, and he puts all his energy into his social following. Uh, still Freddy. Dream yeah. Warriors. Okay. Okay. Um, I mean, Freddy starts out as real, though. Freddy so is... does Candyman. So does Candyman. Yeah. I mean, I will say Candyman I, is yeah. more is more millennial because of the like um, Etsy Ooh. aesthetic. I actually wanted to talk about that. Like, how do we feel about the whole backstory of Candyman and the story of Daniel uh, Robidale? It's the same plot as the beginning of Holes, but aside from that, uh, <laughs> it's it's correct. I mean, here's the thing. I accept it because I'm like, yeah, that happened so many times and was real. Um, and it's the kind of thing where even if his name wasn't Daniel, it doesn't matter. There was a man that that happened to. It probably happened somewhere near there and just kept happening, right? Yeah. Like, so the story happened, uh, whether his, and his whole point is whether the name changed over time, it doesn't matter. Whether he is Daniel specifically or an amalgam of like a dozen Daniels that that happened to, which also plays into like the way that he's an amalgam of a bunch of urban legends. It's true and accurate and lesser horror movies that have tried to do the or lesser movies that have done the tragic end of the uh, black man and the interracial relationship have made it really rote. But I think that it is the right it's the right one for this. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, Because he's seen as someone who transgressed in white spaces, who was defeated by being burned right and then from there he targets the one community that still sees him as a threat the black community and then by the end well he has he has now used this white woman as like a way to become a threat for a white community as well like he is actually brought in (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> wasn't Candyman already at the beginning of the movie because the first time we hear about Candyman it is the story about him killing like a white girl in a suburban neighborhood yeah so but it- it's her roommate's boyfriend knew her yeah, so it's it just sort of- full it's like that that uh, it may have happened it may not also just the over exaggeration of like the greaser style like I think the idea is Maybe someone did die. Whether that happened, we have no evidence of because so-and-so's, you know, random person sort of knew about it. I like to think Billy the Bad Boy wasn't actually supposed to be quite such a greaser, but that's just how Ted Raimi was dressing in 1991, (laughs) so they ran with it. Yeah, I I feel like this is just how the, the urban legend game of telephone works too because you know someone reads a an article because it was in the paper but yeah you know it's essentially it was appropriation is i mean it is it like i think that that's the right word right because okay, yeah the the whole concept at the beginning is you as the audience member after watching this movie know that that story cannot be true because it's suburban it does not yes. center on the community that is your that is your major sign that candy man did not do yeah because when you actually get into 
the way the rules work in the movie, he is centralized on Cabrini Green. He it is that that myth has spread so so far that we see him as having as it being able to work anywhere but that's not how the rules work right okay is yeah. they in fact make it so that it works for helen originally not uh because her building was part of those projects right is that that's canon and then he links himself oh. to helen which is when it starts happening outside of cabrini green right so yeah. that initial story is a play off of the west craven like that it is almost it is such a pull from the original freddy movie every step of the way the styling is i think supposed to reference those characters the vibe of that is so very you know the houses in those suburbs and it's because the story has spread so much that it's been appropriated by white teens who giggle about it in fear and even when the um, grad student is retelling that story she's giddy yeah she's not taking it like she's like no it's true but she's not serious about it right no she thinks of it as gossip so i think that that word is just really perfect for it okay ted ramey was basically johnny depp anyway so yeah (laughs) Uh, he's the better version this is true look if Um, they look if they're gonna reboot jack sparrow i think you could do a lot worse than ted ramey <laughs> um, I'm now going to be obsessed with that all night. So thank you. There thank you go you for that. There you go. <laughs> I, I do what I can. Gonna, I was going to say about the um, the appropriation too. That you know, as you've mentioned, also the fact that the 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 kind of goofy Candyman story that these kids, these white kids, are telling doesn't have any of the context of like the the racism and the horror that was the origin of this story it's all direct sex and even with him yeah where you have this the sexuality to the story with helen it is intimacy right yeah and even as we were cracking jokes earlier right there's the whole concept of this big sex thing but it's not even really about her boyfriend right she tells him to wait downstairs for a surprise and we never get us we never even get a hint as to what like normally when you do those scenes right you see the girl prepping for whatever the surprise is right yeah but we don't even get that like they're not even connected to one another i'm pretty sure the surprise for her was like i'm gonna summon candy man and get killed <laughs> and he's gonna he's not gonna expect that at all yeah <laughs> and uh yeah this this movie is actually i mean and this will come into play a lot in this next scene this movie is really heavy on discretion it doesn't show a lot of people being murdered um for being as bloody as it is because Um, he's a rumor you don't need to show anybody dying you just need the audience to know it's essentially like very close to like related to like the ring in that way right it's like the spreading of the tale is what powers it more so than ever actually seeing the crime. Well, I mean, I think, you know, this movie is a hard R. And I mean, I guess we'll see when it comes out. But I, I, mean, I yeah, would think if it, it were made today, we would definitely see Cassie Lemons getting torn up in that scene. Whereas, like, we don't see any of that in this version. She just keeps blacking out. And when she comes to, people are diced up. Look, we I mean, do get a full on decapitated dog. And I'll go on record and saying, nope, didn't like that. Neither did I. Do not that like graphic decapitated dog. I'm not that's, reading JoJo's. I don't want to see that. That's actually the I next don't like scene. it when JoJo's does it. Um, they also they also would have shown us act. This is like probably the most upsetting scene to me 
totally and because of the way they do violation without it being sexual but still being about her body the scene with the cop where she asks if she can take a shower repeatedly would Mm -hmm. have been so different if it was done now and it is so much more heartbreaking because it is this bodily violation right and it's interesting because it's not actually something that Candyman ever does and it's also very specifically this thing that like doesn't happen to the white girl right Yes. Like it is, it is so very that moment of I mean of of her experiencing this 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 completely this world that doesn't make sense for the white girl in these movies to experience. Yeah, when when the cop showed up, I had this moment of strange, like, oh no, what's gonna happen? Because I realized, like, okay, this is Anne Marie's apartment, and Helen is both an intruder, covered in blood, and waving a meat cleaver. And I still don't know how the cops are going to play this. Yeah. And either way destroys Anne-Marie's life, right? Yeah. Like, at the, like it's very interesting because even if there was no Candyman, but this went down, even if she, you know, found Anthony, but like Helen still did this, no matter what the cops do when they come in in that moment, her life is forever changed in a nightmarish way. And it's all because Helen knocked on her yep and like that's one of the reasons that i think that the in those ways i think the movie is in a way that not a lot of early 90s movies is are are aware of this level of 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 like white feminism because it does it does the work of all the cause and effect of white feminism right there's Mm -hmm. so many of those things in here that i'm like i don't know if they meant for this to be the case but like it very much reads like that in a modern context, looking at it. Um, you know, there's there's very few of these moments that you look at it and go, ah, well, that's that's not right. You know, they're viewing it from this very, you know, white feminist perspective. It's very much like, oh no, the white feminism is there. Whether they knew they were doing it at the time or not is is unclear because they don't ever point to it. They don't ever, you know, put a post-it on it, but like But it's they're there. consistent about it, which is yeah. very interesting to me. My favorite yeah. clueless part thing that Helen does in that sequence is she wakes up, she sees the cleaver and immediately picks it up. Don't do that. Don't pick no. up the bloody okay, cleaver. No, okay, no. Here's the thing. I will actually go to bat for her there. You wake up covered in blood. You just blacked out. You hear screaming in the other room. What? And you're in a bathroom, so there's no exit. What do you do? You pick up that cleaver because you are going to die. That's fair. That's I fair. will That's actually say that is the most intelligent it, now she's being manipulated into being set up. Yeah. But that is the only intelligent option, especially since she doesn't have a cell phone. Yeah. yeah. That's now, extreme, at, that's at the extremely, moment that she yeah. sees uh, Anne-Marie there, she should probably put the cleaver down. But do, no, no. Again, think about her perspective. Do you take put it down? Do you leave yourself vulnerable? Everything is covered in blood. You have no clue what's going on. Also, you have no clue how much time you've lost. Yeah. So, yeah. and you are in Anne Marie's bathroom. All you know is you've woken up bloody on her, f- and she probably, in that shock, cannot logically understand a single word that Anne Marie is saying. And what yeah. happens next? Anne Marie attacks her. Now she's in this situation because she is a meddling white woman. But at the <laughs> point, yes. at the point that you are this far, anything else is welcoming your death. And that's the brilliance of that scene because it is very intentional that Candyman has set her up in such a way that in order 
to not die, she has to implicate herself in. Yeah. And I also like, there's an argument also to be said of whether he makes her black out or whether he has possessed her. She may have actually com- committed those murders. Like she may have actually handed him the baby. Yeah. She may have actually like, at, like we see that when he haunts her in the other, like in the hospital, right? He doesn't show up. Did she kill him? kill the doctor as far as everyone else is concerned like we don't know but there's actually evidence that that at least when she blacks out that she may have actually been the one to physically do the murders because she is tied to him yeah um but like just genuinely speaking if i am waking up in those situations i am shit scared and you are not taking that cleaver (laughs) from my hands because you are i am open to death at that point <laughs> yeah well i think i think the one thing that like i think that scene um when we look back on that scene we think about all of those other scenes where she like picks up the fucking hook mm-hmm. and she's like in the projects with the hook running around and that you know like at that point i'm like mm, i mean yeah you've been through a lot and you know there's not else there may not be a lot else around but I don't know. I don't know if I would have picked up the hook in that in that situation. Yeah, the, the hook, she's like kind of buck wild. It doesn't yeah. make sense. <laughs> Maybe uh, put that in your pocket or something, you know? Just... Yeah, put that in your inventory for later. But like, yeah, but in this scene, you know, the cleaver, that kind of like if you isolate that from everything that happens after that. Yeah, like it's very much you know, so you it's it seems extreme, but then you think like, well, it, thinking about shock and all this kind of stuff like yeah it's reasonable and you know she was she tried not to uh cut amory um until amory like was had her pinned on the ground you know there was there was a lot of time before she she actually cut amory so um you know she was still like really fucking confused and you know of course the cops open the door when she is on top like she has managed to to um get on top of Marie and is like re, 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 like with her with her knife up and uh you know um and that's part of like the the horror of that situation just you know the the fact that there's like it's all about how she is found and how she is seen and which harkens back to the uh the entire issue of racism with the police you know, in this case, um, Helen is being targeted. She still gets, you know, the the um, the strip scene uh, being what it is, but like, you know, Helen still gets pretty good. Like, she gets to go home and chill in her sweater um, after, you know, being in jail rather than, you know, because because her husband could afford bail or whatever. But um, the 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 fact that she she knows that what happened to her at least in that point that it was reasonable um but there's no way she can prove it um and yeah, they, they also mentioned that the only reason that she's not still in jail is because they don't actually charge her with anything because they're hoping that they'll find the baby's body so that they can charge her with murder uh which yeah. is gruesome um i i do want to talk about the strip scene a little bit yeah here mm-hmm. because the um this that's another thing when i was thinking about this movie in a in a um through a feminist lens is that the first time we see this like beautiful woman protagonist um with her tits out essentially is this horribly like grotesque 
invasive scene. We, and we don't get like any sort of, it's not shot suggestively. She is terrified and you really, really feel that like terror with her and how, and, and it's not super blatant where she's not like, she's been told, she's told to lift her breasts up and all that kind of stuff. And show. she's turned around. Yeah. At that point, there's yeah. no men in that scene. Yeah. It's not an exploitative or an objectifying scene. It's very much uh, violating. It's from her perspective and it is shot and presented as violating. Yeah. Which, you know, you have all of the, these like soft, soft focus romance scenes with the candy man that are very, very intimate, but except for like the hook and the dress thing later, don't get like super overtly like visually sexual there audio sexual like candy man gaslighting where there's like, intimacy yeah. to the scenes more so than sexuality for the most part. Yeah. Which like in horror can sometimes be like used like like simultaneously. But I think that there's like a very, very real like difference. Like, say, for example, the only time she's jumped on in her sleep is her husband coming home from his mistress. Yeah. <laughs> God. Like, it's literally the only time. Yeah. But it's done in a way that because she was so scared about Candyman that like it doesn't even register to, to argue with him that it's three o'clock in the morning. But like that hit is there. Yeah. I didn't even remember. Think about that until now, too. Um. Because I just find it really interesting how much they play they play up like loud like once you're thinking about it they like put like alarm like alarm klaxons so, like sounding uh, about it being like, gaslighting right yeah like because because they do that initial scene with him being like come on like and you get the idea that like maybe it is maybe it's not you know like. Because that maybe they're playing with the idea that he's not having an affair, but her being paranoid about an affair will feed into everyone going that she's paranoid about Candyman, like you don't know which way she's going. But yeah. every scene after that lands it, right? Mm-hmm. He jumps on her in the middle of the night at like three, three in the morning, you know, oh, he's not there when she calls. He's not there because he's with his uh, other woman, like, and like they keep doing that. And it's... It's so, so like, there's all of these emotional violations there. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the aggressive touch is from him, right? Yeah. And then you get this intimacy from Sweets that when he is heralding her to her death, he touches her more tenderly than her husband ever does. Even uh, what I noticed was the weird way that they kiss in the lecture hall. It's really weird when you look at it, her and her yeah. husband, because he grabs her as if she's, he's going to do like, uh, I was like, that's a weirdly intimate like lip kiss that they're about to do because he like pulls her in by like the sides of her cheeks. But then he, but then they kiss or it might be the other way too. I don't remember who pulls in, but he kisses yeah. her cheek instead. Yeah. You know? Um, also Stacy is right there too. Yeah. Which so is like, interesting. There's a whole language of the uh, stopping the intimate kiss mm-hmm. there. And then there's this really intimate softness with like the pain will be exquisite, right? Yeah. That honestly, even when he is being violent with her up until like the fire, he never really breaks that with her. He breaks that around her. Yeah. You know, like the only time that comes close is when he's reaching out of the like the mirror and frankly he doesn't even touch her in that scene yeah 
pain will be exquisite. That line had some big Hellraiser energy. Oh yeah, <sighs> I love it. Everything, everything he said, all of that stuff was very like Cenobite. Like it was very, very poetic. Um, and uh, oh, the sights Tony Todd has to show you. <laughs> yeah, knowing that they it's changed that character pretty substantially from like the original Clive Barker version, he still feels like a Clive Barker character. Yeah. Um, yeah, because I mean, you know, the original, the original being in Liverpool has a different feel to it. The idea of of because... lines being delivered in a, that sort of Liverpool accent by a, <laughs> by a guy who's supposed to be a sickly yellow is like not quite the same. What about John Constantine? I'm sorry. Anyway, uh... <laughs> um, it's also interesting because that like the one thing that they really keep that's very Clive. Is, which is interesting because this is one of his ones that I don't actually mm-hmm. is his queer flamboyant. His queerness plays a large part in his, mm-hmm. you know, and how they exist. Um, and some of that flamboyance remains in sweets, which because like I don't look at him like necessarily like some of his other villains and go, oh, "You're you're a gay," like you know, like <laughs> uh, in a way that most of Clive's villains really are. Um, yeah, I mean that might be that he is constantly talking very romantically this close to a woman's face like <laughs> it's hard it's hard to pull off being particularly but, but even gay so, while you're doing that but even yeah. so like he doesn't like the There's body that. language the the flow of him is still like a very uh straight black masculinity i think mm-hmm. there's also just like that understanding though of what makes a man desirable yeah and romantic regardless yeah yeah. Now, if it was Eddie Murphy, do you think he would come off as queer coded? Um, I actually, um, so as much as I want to talk shit about the idea of Eddie Murphy in this role, Eddie Murphy's serious roles are absolutely astounding. And I think if he really wanted to be Candyman, he absolutely. Um, I think Eddie him Mur- and Dreamgirls is like literally the best part of that movie. Yeah. Like think- his emotional range is wild. And if he wanted to be terrifying, I think he could. I don't think he wants to. I think Eddie Murphy could be a fantastic Candyman, but he would be his version of Candyman. Right. Like, oh, he, yeah. He would never be this Candyman. Yeah, I don't think the vocal hypnotism works with Eddie Murphy's voice. But I, you know, I think there's plenty of ways that you can. But I also think that that was stuff. definitely informed by already having Tony Todd there. Yeah, I yeah. do love the SNL version where it's Eddie Murphy doing Eddie Murphy's version yeah. of yeah. Tony Todd. <laughs> uh, I think, uh, for example, I think you could have gotten uh, a little more twisted, a little bit more uh, edge of Joker. Like it would have been closer to uh, Robert England's. Uh, you know, Freddy, I think, than Tony oh, yeah. Todd's Candyman. Yeah. But it still would have scared the crap out of me, uh, just in a very, very different way. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, at this point in the movie, uh, she, she is almost immediately left at home alone, uh, despite everything that's happened to her. Trevor doesn't Another sign about her husband. And here's the thing I think that is actually more about her husband than anything oh. else that's happening in that scene. Yeah. Because there is nothing more nightmarish than to think of the way, again, because Candyman tells her later, right? They all will abandon. And he actually abandons, like, throughout the whole, right? Yeah. And that's that's her breaking point, right? Trevor's a fucking chip, right? <laughs> He's, he is the worst. He is yeah. beyond chip, because he, he, well, he's more insidious than chip. 
and they're married. And um, he was already having an affair in Gatslinger before the horror even started. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like he's he is uh, off the ship scale. He's it's uh it's very yellow wallpaper. Yeah. Oh. Um, like up to and including her crawling over his body at the end after he passes out or dies in this case. Um, yeah. Just very much that setup of like there's there's so much to also the idea that like he's having this affair right with Stacy, but we still see the dinner that he brings his wife to right that that he's still dedicated to the appearance there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, he, he and then sort of he abandons doesn't doesn't stand up for her during her when his colleague is such a shithead. Xander Berkeley, he thinks it's yeah. funny. He laughs. Yeah delivering a Xander Berkeley role and it really is just that one more toxic male academia just letting it happen perpetually uh in fact yeah in fact it's the step up from letting it happen because it is mentioned in that scene that uh he told what her work was and he knows exactly that guy's personality he set her up for that scene yep active uh, which is like really fucking awful. I yeah. feel like this guy just sucks so hard that if my partner asked me to go to a dinner with this guy, I'd be like, "Me at this dinner is already the favor. Red flag already that you're even hey, that you're even asking me to spend mm-hmm. time with." Yeah, I'm so sad he didn't die. I'm sorry, folks. <laughs> if you haven't seen this film and you're already in the spoiler section, you've Doesn't been with he... this far. Well, think about how he, if he wrote a whole paper on Candyman and none of this happened to him, think about like he must have been extra like removed. Like he didn't even visit. Like doesn't any, he like, die in the second movie? Oh, I don't hopefully, know. I the second movie. I yeah, because he's Purcell, one. right? Yeah, um, Purcell. I think he's in the like. I don't actually think it's the same actor, but Purcell shows up in the. Uh, I'm gonna check this out because Please. I believe he dies. Uh, yeah, uh, he he is. Uh, so three years after the Candyman mur- murders in Chicago, um, the father of the main character Annie is murdered while investigating the deaths of three men in a similar fashion to the legend. A year after that, Purcell writes a book about the case because he is that dipshit, and mm-hmm. then he's killed in a public bathroom after the book signing. Yeah, and Annie's brother is accused of the murder. You know, I'm gonna go watch it now. I'm gonna just say good for Purcell because what kind of urban legend academic are you if you are not haunted, driven mad by, and eventually killed by said urban legend? I mean, he would have better. He hopefully he was forgotten. He just kept writing books, like the whole thing of him taking everyone's. Like the whole point of Candyman is like ownership of both your story and like gets to participate in them and then yeah. he shows up to steal it almost three times in one one movie <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you know this is um, i saw the trailer for Candyman three it looked don't don't think about that one we just <laughs> not high budget is that one farewell to the flesh no farewell to, to the flesh the second one which is why oh. it has such a good name yeah, yeah I think that's the, the one I saw. I don't know why Tony Todd traded his signature long fur coat for a North Face. Uh, because I guess they, they wanted a even blacker costume choices. <laughs> um, if I was uh, urban legend 
murderer of myth, I would be in a North Face and Tim's. So <laughs> I understand this. Well, I mean, he could also be wearing those awesome, like, pastel purple parkas that the, uh, the gang dudes are wearing at the front. The windbreakers are so good. Uh, yeah. I, I looked at them and I went, I, I want that now. Style. Right? Actually, my first thought was, those jackets, no, that's, that's not what they, that would not be their, their code because those were so in fashion that that would be a really <laughs> bad way to signify who who was in there's a reason why why colored scarves were a thing yeah but also you know well maybe they were in a band together maybe they did both maybe yeah. they were in a band that was also their gang their gang yeah. was actually a record label were, which is the story of half of the rap record they were real big the 90s, into right? golden wind it was coming out they had the shonen jump subscription <laughs> i was gonna say they they were they were the ocean pacific gang that's how they got those uh <laughs> So they got those windbreakers. There you go. Um, all right. So this is a scene where he comes back. Is this the one where he uh, carves through the back of your mirror with his uh, his hook? She's yes. Yes. That's where we get our little jump scare. Yeah, we have the jump scare. It was a jump scare for her as well. She did not yeah. know that was about to happen. Because then she she's imagine. running around like the apartment and the building trying to get away. And he just keeps teleporting all over the dang place. Yeah. she He cuts her. And then um, she lays on the ground for a while. Yeah, she lays on the ground for a while and she tells Bernie not to come in. The door's unlocked and she's screaming. So Bernie's like, what the fuck? I'm bringing you your I hope you're not acquitted or I hope you are acquitted. Not sure. Maybe both uh, bouquet. (laughs) I was so saddened by the fact that the bouquet really is an acknowledgement that Bernie believes her, that Bernie trusted her. And I wish we would have gotten that before then because like there is no indication when we see bernie that she is afraid of helen yeah uh and she actually in fact that the reason that she dies is because she does not abandon helen of her own accord right i I think the indication with bernie is that she is actually killed by Candyman because when she comes oh yeah she she has to she looks up (laughs) as something scary um which she would not be doing if you know it was helen um uh, unless frightened. i mean the argument is whether we break from helen's perspective right we got like, it, a Tyler in their situation uh yeah i mean like because there's definitely like i think anytime someone is killed by helen they are being killed by Candyman. like yeah. directly it is you know like it is he is making her do these things hence like the hypnotism thing yeah you know uh the hypnotism and and possession uh but also i just like before that like it i wish that the moments with the lawyer that we could have had the dichotomy of her husband being there and clearly still being distant but also bernie being there to hold her other hand yeah Yeah. the fact that bernie isn't there is interesting because i feel like at it also really continues it makes that that white feminism thing a bit more consistent um because she's so you know she's she's so separated um i mean also bernie is the last person to see her before she shows up covered in blood at this girl's apartment so like yeah i would assume the police would want to talk to her yeah um it's interesting because the signs in that scene so indicate that she still supported yeah yeah Yep. And that is a specific, like, she visits her 
specifically to show a very sweet sign of support if you she's not awkward at the door she's not uncomfortable being there so she's not she doesn't see helen as a threat so what does she think and that is like it's not a plot hole to me right like you don't Mm -hmm. need to know it to figure out the story but i would love that's like the moment where i'm like i would love to know like i feel like a more modern version of this movie um this is one of the only places that i think like um a different take on this movie might do it better is that we would have gotten Bernadette trying to have the conversation through the door because she thinks Helen doesn't want to answer that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I can see that, you know? And so she, and like, it feels to me that she has to die in this scene, not because Candyman was already chasing Helen. So he was already there, but because he has to kill the person that won't abandon her right and you get that that really strong sense of he had to prove that everyone would leave and you can't do that with Bernadette there right Mm -hmm. um and so I wanted that extra bit of communication whether it be at the door whether she be with the lawyer um it would have played perfectly into things if Bernadette was actually the one who walked her out past the to avoid the press and then her husband's outside and then Bernadette's like you could have gone in yeah you know like that would have played into what they were already doing and that's like the only place where I'm like this feels like you didn't take the step that we could have gone but I also feel like the more we saw that though the less likely she makes the final decision to trade herself for Anthony right because in part she makes the final the decision to make the trade not really to save the kid it's partially to save it's yeah it's because well since i have nothing else i can trade myself for the kid she wasn't going to trade herself until she lost her last relationship yeah it's just everything you know so like it's it's not all that heroic um but it's okay. It doesn't matter for the story. All that matters for Anne Marie and that community is that she saved the kid. Yeah. So it doesn't matter her personal motivations, right? It's a yeah. White feminism redemption. <laughs> yeah, you know, but but we also still see that that it's that that wasn't her point because if she was willing to do that, the movie would have been half that length, right? Right. Because the Candyman the whole time was like, "You want to trade yourself for the kid?" And she's like, "No." No, I'd rather yeah. go crazy and see all my friends die and or abandon me. Speaking of crazy, this is where she, you know, she is really, uh, really zip tied and arrested and corded or carted off to the psych ward. Uh, she sees Candyman floating above her in one of the coolest shots in this movie, um, and which you know we'll we'll come back to in a second. And uh, you know she gets a she gets a shot, wakes up, uh, finds out that she's been out for a month. Um, and the doctor plays her footage of you know when she when she thinks she saw the Candyman, and uh, there's nobody there floating above her. We On get the quad screens. Brief, I'm like, we get brief maybe uh, queer representation when she says, "I want to speak to my husband," and one of the male orderly says, "Yeah, me too." Yeah, I was wondering about that. That or- orderly needed to be um, uh, put the same place that Trevor was. <sighs> Um, and not in the way that perhaps he wanted, because they're both <clears throat> awful. Yeah, not not a great guy that orderly. Um, yeah. So she decides that the the one option she has left is to bring the Candyman there and to show that she's not crazy. Uh, so she looks in the mirror and says his name, 
uh, and it doesn't look like anything's going to happen for a minute. And then, uh, you know, the doctor starts puking up blood and Candyman rises up from behind him and uh, undoes her her straps. You mean the scene in which she officially becomes a villain? Yeah. 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 This was where I thought she was going, especially when like, because after that, she goes back to like her old like her house with Trevor. I thought she was going to start intentionally summoning Candyman in order to like use him as a weapon to murder or like people who had hurt her. See, here's the thing. It, again, in that weird way that it deals with white feminism, she can't justify that to herself. The only way out of that room for her was to summon him. So it's okay, you know, but yeah. she can what, which is different than revenge. If she's not doing revenge, then she's still a good guy, but she's not right. Like she, be, mm-hmm. she makes the decision that, to get out of there, it's okay that she kills this man. This man who's literally her, the psychologist on her side. Like, it is, they make a very important point that he is not working for the hospital. She's, he's working for, for her defense. Yeah. Yeah. But to this point, she has no, she has no reason to debate whether her defense has her best interest in mind. She won't know that her husband is an asshole who has moved his girlfriend into their apartment for a couple more minutes. Yeah, well, in this scene, um, I mean, if we really think about the forensic, and then again, this is the the sort of the Tyler Durden effect of like, what, when are we seeing her point of view? Or when are we seeing, you know, an an objective point of view? Because as the audience, we see um, the Candyman, like, gut this dude from the back. And while she's in the chair and you know we're like thinking about it forensically we're like okay so he got cut with a with a hook but then she does go out the window that he wrecking balled out so you know the which makes crouching it... tiger hidden dragons out yeah, yeah that is so... that is the one place where i wanted to shake the special effects people because that's the one place where i looked and i went that looks bad <laughs> it was it was campy looking but i i did look away for a second and i missed it and i had to re- you know go back and and look at it and it was okay i mean it was okay well, that's it, definitely the thing it. is it looks bad because of the rest of the movie looking good and oh, like that's yeah. really that's really the problem is that like i don't care if it the special effects look bad if they're consistently bad mm-hmm. right because it doesn't break but they'd never use that sort of action again they yeah. never it doesn't fit with the rest of his power set in the way that we see him move in any other scene. Cause if he moves in that way, then that alters the way that he should move in every other scene in the, but he doesn't. So like, it's this whole thing where like, yes, he breaks through the window again to set her up, to force her to have to run. But the use of this bizarre special effects there, like, I'm like, wait, what, what? I mean, he's kind of, it looks like he's almost thrown out the window. Like mm-hmm. he goes like kind of sucked out. Um, he moves, he moves like she threw something out the window, which I think is an interesting choice. Yeah. That's why I'm thinking like, okay, I mean, you know, like, I think this is definitely like a dissociation situation. It looks like Storm from the first X-Men movie just threw like wind blast at him and he's flying mm-hmm. out. Yeah. And you can totally see the cables too, which is, uh, you know, the, not, um, to the Not credit. the best. So, like, yeah. It has to be, though, that he's real and actually doing it in that scene because it can't be, like, her possessed by him doing it because I don't know how well she could have, like, gone out of her restraints. I mean, like, that's the thing, is that how far into her her delusion are we at this point? Because, again, like, 
if he actually you know if she killed the um the psychiatrist how does she get behind him and get him from the back right we also don't know what that scene looked like to anyone that's actually the only only murder scene that we don't know the results of yeah because we don't know if he's i mean i doubt that he survives because he's you know but still like who knows well no just in terms of we don't know what that murder scene looked like to anyone else oh it's also a scene in which she just straight up has time to like strip a guard get him dressed during a red alert dress wipe her entire face down while people are walking past her get in the elevator and move that's Um, right and here's the thing whether or not she's possessed i read that as be that whole interaction through the whole thing is being manipulated by candy man not like so i think that yes you're supposed to kind of know that this is a little ridiculous if nothing supernatural is happening right yeah um also she just one shots that that nurse like she yeah that's and the nurse like cracks in half when she like she looks at her and the nurse like goes um yeah i, I don't know if it's I, I couldn't tell if it's supposed to be supernatural or if like as she's escaping if that's like just her average white woman camouflage she's just like i'm a 30 something white blonde lady i'm just heading down this elevator nothing yeah, to see I- here I think the different kind of freedom that like she has the freedom of a white woman through the whole movie, but she moves differently through the movie once she summons him herself. And I think that that's very notable that that her is her there is not just camouflage, right? Because she literally has blood on her face, right? Like I was thinking like, oh, she just has literally the most common hairstyle of the early 90s. But also the just the amount of time right mm-hmm. the way that you have again that thing that leads leans into the white feminism is the fact that they have a catatonic white male patient in the room that stares unseeingly at her while she strips the orderly down yeah there is someone in the room and she does all of that without being seen because yeah. you know like and i think all of that plays into this whole manipulation of the world through Candyman, you know be it through possession or just him moving things around right i think i think part of the point of the movie and the ways that they show things is that it doesn't matter either way yeah well i mean this this whole bit could also be her just us seeing how capable she is that she is capable of murder she is capable of doing all these things yeah um, because she manages to get her way through this hospital and like and that's why that's why she's the one you know yeah because she was always from the beginning as much as she's being gaslit by her husband she is fully capable of just yielding her power without giving a goddamn about anyone else yeah through the whole movie and this is just the culmination of that because she no longer has anything tying her to the need to be respectable yeah yeah, except for her husband, which she uh, then runs off to and discovers. But, she, but even in that, she thinks yeah. he's going to save her. His existence will save her. Yeah. So he does whatever, she does whatever she can to get to the point of safety. And that's why she can justify the death that she, mm-hmm. that she causes. That's why it, she is not scared by the splashes of blood on her in this scene. She just wants to 
wipe it off of her, you know, very Lady Macbeth moment, right? Whereas every other time you've seen her with blood, she freaks out, right? Yeah. She's not freaked out by blood. Yeah, she, she just, just needs pragmatically like that's gone. Then, well, I guess, you know, this that's all, she, all she's got left. Yeah. yeah. And this scene in the apartment, she finally moves from being the one, you know, threatened to being doing the threatening. Um, she is very, very on edge in this very just this close to killing some people um, because they're I mean, and honestly, with that shade of pink, who could blame her? Um, yeah. Yeah, well, she's right. Like, that coral yes. pink that they're painting the inside of that house is awful. Here's yeah. what I, I was sitting there just like, you know what? I would love that as an accent wall. A whole house? Yeah, like, the I could see that, that apartment in, is going down as they paint it. I could see that as like an accent wall in a kitchen, and I think it could be really nice like in a kitchen sort of situation, but a whole house. It's like a maddening thing. Like, the fact that, like, that is... It's real wild to paint your whole apartment a single non- beige color yeah. like that's not normal like also, this pink is the same pink of the guy's fucking bedroom in hard candy yes oh my gosh it, which is a very very you know that's not a great association um, so i think that proves then that it was trevor who picked that color yeah well uh, yeah oh, mm. oh no he doesn't care about the it's, color it's awful dude pink he, no, uh, he, he doesn't care about it because all that matters is that uh, Helen is not part of that color. Yeah. When, uh, there's a couple things about this scene that I, I want to say. One the is- The towel with the, with, with, with the robe? That douchebag entrance? Yes. Okay. First, okay. Yes. The three things that I want to say. Now if one has been said, yeah, his fucking like ascot with the fucking robe. Like what the fuck, dude? Seriously? Like you're not, you're- god i feel like okay. that's also not the first time we've seen xander berkeley rocking yeah. that in a movie i can't think of what movie it is but i like Nobody saw that rocks. and i've seen it before xander berkeley rocks a douchey ass god with the absolute best of them <laughs> certainly um also he decided to stay in this apartment where bernadette was killed yep so there's that third i think that because when i when she was coming in we start over here when Helen was coming in to this apartment, like this whole scene, after running for her life from the uh, the hospital, I was totally expecting him to be, Trevor being, like her to be catching Trevor and Stacy in bed together. I feel like it's almost worse. It's, it's worse. way it's worse. worse. It's so worse. much worse. Okay. So much worse. Cool. I'm glad my feeling is validated. Okay, so I can just go ahead and say decisively. He's, he's not cheating on her. He has replaced her in, in a yeah. month. She, well, yeah, yeah like, this we is knew, a completely new thing. We knew he was cheating on her. We knew he was sleeping with her. Like Jerry said, this is, he has erased Helen from his life in a month. Yeah, because also because he, I mean, obviously he wasn't doing anything to get her out of the hospital because he's already replaced her, you know? Mm -hmm. Um. So yeah, this is, this is like violating on so many levels doesn't have the same like immediate shock value of hearing because then you also hear like the squeaking and at first i'm like are they fucking and then you see it's the the paint on the wall and it's stacy and stacy's reaction here is kind of great like i feel like stacy's reaction is kind of amazing in terms of how she's like oh how oh, fuck you know like it's there's some really good subtlety in that actor and the the actor's response there so um good job i don't remember her name but 
Good job. Then she I like also literally think... starts crying without yeah. addressing any of what's going on. She just starts crying at her. Is I mean, like... I, w- I would also yeah. start crying. Let's that's be what real. I'm saying. At like, that, that point, so I would just. Fucked up. I, if, you're lucky if I'm just crying and not shitting my pants at that point, frankly, because she definitely is like, your wife murdered people and I'm in her bed. She gonna kill me. Yeah. I'm gonna die. Uh, I would cry. I mean, I can't stand her, but I understand why in that moment. Also, like, what I think is interesting, the way that this harkens back, like the way that the reason this is worse is that first line when Helen in the beginning is like, so what's up with her? He's done this book, but he's yeah. never moved them in. That yeah. for the way that she presents the, oh, she couldn't look at me means he keeps doing. She might have been one of the people that was part of that cycle at one point, right? I do. Mm-hmm. That, that she recognizes it as familiar behavior. And like, cause here's the thing. If a student doesn't, can't look at me, I don't, ass- like if someone can't look at me, I don't jump to that right like she oh they're shy oh i'm intimidating this is weird i'm uncomfortable no she has seen stacy's behavior before yeah he could get over if it was sex but it's yeah. not sex and that's why it's so much worse. yeah I'm, I'm just trying to put myself in casey's head like i'm 19 i'm because i've moved in with my professor in his 40s that's already, I'm sure, an emotional roller coaster with her parents she wasn't expecting. And now she's getting ready in her new home, trying to make the most of this new chapter that she's clearly rushed into irresponsibly. And whoop, who stumbles home? My p- new partner's ex-wife who was in a mental hospital for dismembering her best friend, allegedly. Also, double you know, homicide at this point. That yeah. is what an what an overwhelming emotional roller coaster. Like and <laughs> and, and, poor Casey, and possibly terrible, three because they're not sure about Anthony. And also that puts a damper on uh, the other Candyman case because that defense attorney is like, I'm gonna have a field day by saying this white woman's been secretly killing people for a long time, and that gang leader is getting out. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> their entire defense, their entire case now, ra- like it's gone. Candyman is back on the street already. Like there's no yeah. way they hold him. Like, yeah, like, it's they- also like Stacy is just so wild because you know who she most reminds me of. This is going to be the weirdest sounding comparison, but it's Sarah Jessica Parker's character in First Wives. The most she is the new. The, the second wife of Bette Midler's husband. God, I haven't seen that movie in a yeah. forever. I'm obsessed with this movie. It, that's definitely okay. the dynamic going yeah, on. Yeah, and the first yeah. time you see that Bette Midler's character meets her is when she comes out of a changing room in a tiny dress, like a, like a, like a, like a mini dress. And the whole idea is that it's like, oh, you, what? And then the whole revenge plot with her is about redecorating the house. It is based in that. It's this yeah. whole, and she goes in these moments where she talks about how, like, she wants to get rid of this, this, and this because it's from the ex-wife. And you, like, hear that stuff. And, mm-hmm. like, so it's not even just that Stacy is painting and that incidentally is taking over, right? That is a concerted effort from a woman to make this place her own, especially since she's doing it, right? Yeah. Like if she yeah. didn't want to do it, 
they hire people. Her yeah. being the person that does it, not him, not like hiring people, is a concerted effort on her part to have the agency of I'm also erasing her. But then the woman comes back and she has no power anymore. Stacy yeah. has zero power in that. Like, yeah, you know, like if if Helen wants to murder Trevor, like she's got him in this scene. But like Stacy has zero power in that scene in like a real way that's almost like when you have a villain that gets stripped of their power. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and Stacy here, like I'm I even with the uh the bid for power over the household, Stacy here is still so like stripped of any sort of pretense of control that she I still feel kind of bad for her. I mean, the, um, it's pink and she's crying. You're supposed, and she's like this this young blonde woman. You're supposed to think of her as even more innocent than the other one because ageism, right? Oh, like, yeah. So, like, she is painted as a child in this scene in a very real way. Yeah, which makes Trevor look even more monstrous. Yeah. Um, but then when Stacy comes back later, it just completely like there's the the movie completely 180s on how they um depict her so it's it's kind of interesting that way but yeah so she's um but it seems uh, consistent still in a really weird way like it's it's 180 because she's being pissy and annoyed mm -hmm. but that's how she probably was before helen came in she dissolves into a puddle yeah because the power she thought she has was removed it is like she's legitimately should be crying because as far as she knows this woman is going to murder her but it is exemplary of a white woman tears like what was it the the uh karen clip of the woman flipping out in victoria's secret that's her crying in that scene. yeah okay yeah all right yeah <laughs> is she has literally like in like thrown herself at this woman's life and taken it right yeah taken the spot the second it was open and then the woman shows up and then she starts crying it is actually because of ageism, like directing the white woman tears at another white woman. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And uh, well, and the understanding for me, it's also the understanding of the, um, the, the victim of grooming. Yes. Um, you know, for, to, to have that. Um, but yeah, like the fact, you know, it's just for me, there's that conflict of do I see Stacy as a, as an antagonist, capital A antagonist? Or just, you know, victim of circumstance in this situation with these toxic ass people. Um, you know, come see, come saw. Good thing the movie isn't about that because, um, you know, it's, it's, I feel like. It's too me, complicated for that. Like, yeah, I, think yeah, yeah. That, I think she can be both. Yeah. Uh, I think that she can be manipulated uh, by this, this older man who has, who's part of the power dynamic. But also still, this, what's happening with Helen is is making headlines. I mean, ultimately, yeah. Helen is you know? the same way. You know, she is oh, yeah. I mean, they're, being yeah. manipulated by these these men, uh, her husband and the other professor. But then she is also passing the same thing on to this community that she has just decided to go in and upend by, you know. I, uh, I think we're supposed to get the sense that Stacy, to a certain degree, is the exact same as Helen. And yeah, that's what makes it complicated. Mirror. It's not even a dark mirror because the only, like, if anything, Helen's the dark mirror, right? Oh, okay, yeah. yeah. Right, but, but I, don't actually, I don't actually think that there's a dark mirror. I think they're just exactly the same. I bet you that that's the exact similar. He might not have been married to the last one. He might have been dating. 
Yeah. But I bet you it's the exact same setup, right? Uh, yeah. You know, especially since she's a grad student and he's a professor. So that's his apartment, right? Yeah. You know, like it, it's the same sort of situation where if Sweets wasn't involved, this always happened. And it was going to happen again when, you know, she is no longer an undergrad. You know, like it's a, it's a same cycle over and over again. Um, and that's kind of what make what complicates the villain versus victim, right? Oh, no. Yeah. Matthew, also, Matthew because the, <laughs> the protagonist is not the protagonist is not really a hero, but no. everyone accepts her as a hero because they need her to be a hero for the heart to stop. Man, Matthew McConaughey's line from Days and Confused is already mm-hmm. creepy as is. And then just gets way creepier when it's put into practice by people, not Matthew McConaughey. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, okay. So at the end of this scene, she, she breaks down and runs off and uh, goes to look at the river for a while. Um, and <laughs> it's a nice river. Perfectly yeah. good river. Worth staring nice at. Shot. You break you know, out can... of a prison slash mental hospital. 10 out of 10 river would stare at again would contemplate that i mean trigger trigger warning to my next thought i'm fairly certain we're supposed to assume that she's considering killing herself in that moment yeah uh and she decides instead of just killing herself to get the baby back yeah if she's gonna die then you know Candyman has already set out this rule like if you're gonna um if you die then the baby's fine basically like you know you trade yourself for the baby so she's like well i want to kill myself but two birds <laughs> i guess yeah. yeah she's like i can at least fix this thing that i'm responsible for yeah because you know the one of the first things she ever heard from from Anne marie is i'm not gonna let them get get him you know yeah yeah so she's gonna she's gonna go back uh to see Candyman and go get some some sweet bee kisses um it's, it's sweet honey kisses that is a real ah, that is a real it. difficult scene to watch uh, that is uh it's like the 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 bees in the mouth and the kissing oh, the it was difficult the for and, them too oh, he I'm used a sure. mouth guard people i need anyone who's listening to this to understand there was a bee safety mouth guard involved and they put the bees in his mouth yeah, and you- i'm not okay with that there's they no CGI. Show these you. Are... This is not CGI. These are this these is are not bees. these are not real bees in a CGI mouth. These are this is all real man real and it's horrifying. Real bees. I, and apparently to to remove them they used a real bee vacuum, which I did not know was a thing. Uh, oh yeah. But like they vacuumed yeah. the bees out of his mouth, man. They, they used a very gentle vacuum to vacuum the bees out of his mouth so that no bees this, were harmed. And in, in this way, Tony Todd became a legend because there's no way in hell. <laughs> yeah, Tony Todd, there's straight I mean, we have no discretion. It's full on, full frontal Tony Todd's face. Tony Todd wanted it. Can, can like, we go clearly full on, he full wanted bees. it for this character? Can like we he go wanted on this the, movie to happen. Can we go on the record though and argue that? He was not paid enough per beasting. Absolutely not. One thousand of beasting, not cutting it. Look, it's one thing when it's on your body. Now we're talking in your body. Mouth like, stings. That has to be at least five grand a sting. I've had literal nightmares about that. Unconnected. He likes his women like he likes his coffee. This not. It's not. It's not All unconnected to this movie. It keeps the myth alive. Covered bees. <laughs> By having these nightmares, you're keeping Candyman alive. I don't understand. 
understand why we Nicolas Cage this meme when Tony Todd is right there and he had actual bees in his actual mouth. Yeah, (laughs) Nicolas Cage just had bees around him. He had theoretical bee mouth, but like Tony Todd has 23,000 like bee monies. Like he got bee bucks for this. Mm. Again, I want to show Tony Todd the scene from like Nicolas Cage with the bees just to watch like this smug satisfaction of knowing like uh, like of Tony Todd knowing how much better they are. Do you think that when that meme started he would just think that and it was good? Like just be like really this is the one? The idea of anything on the internet really confuses me. Well, I think he was always like, well, okay, if you want someone bothered by the bees, I guess you can make a meme out of that. I was too busy being a stone cold badass, not reacting to these bees. I know. As I made out he, with, with Virginia Madsen with bees in my mouth. They had to act that scene. That, like, think about that. They they had to say, let's go and cut. And they had to be in and out of character. And they had to keep in character. And that's that's too much. Well, that's, I just I don't know. Uh, oh, I can like I can picture as as somebody who like has acted, uh, being like, all right, I'm gonna do this for the scene. Like, put the bees on me. I got it. Let's go and doing the scene, and then immediately afterwards, just having a scream just erupt from my entire body, like as I realized what was actually going on. I know, like, like, no, I, no, during the, bees. I'm not him anymore. During the recording of this podcast. I had a fly fly up my nose and I wasn't going to bring that up. Yes. Yes. Like about half an hour ago, a fly just flew up my nose and it was awful. And I'm thinking about that now. (laughs) We talk about these dreams. I don't know how often Virginia Madsen gets asked in interviews. So what's the weirdest on screen kiss you've ever had? (laughs) But she has that answer locked and loaded, ready to go. Now, does she say with Tony Todd or does she say kissing the bees? Because technically she also kissed the bees. I mean, at any time, I would always say that I kissed Tony Todd. I'd like to think she introduces is like, oh, I got it was some good news, bad news. Like, good news. You're going to be making out with Tony Todd. Bad news. He's got a mouthful of bees. Well, at least now we know that he's royalty. (sighs) That's he's royalty to me always. Well, I mean, yeah, like we know objectively objectively no uh, no <laughs> rejected Emily. no 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 yeah and this this is his most phantom of the opera moment of this movie he is a hundred percent phantom of the opera but with bees when he, i don't know when he carries her and you see them from the back that's basically oh, straight from the opera that's oh, yeah that's iconic and then, like, the whole, the Dracula, like, I, like, she's got the Morticia eyes going on. It's all soft focus. and uh, it's, it's so beautiful. It, it is my second favorite shot in the whole movie because my first favorite is when she walks out of his mouth. I feel like the yeah, bees. Like the bees eventually will yeah. later on. The bees, the bees in the mouth. He's, like, maintaining this, like, stoic piercing gaze. And then I like when he's piercing. doing, like. Piercing, ha, ha. Uh, like, stinging. Bee- and then yeah. I like when he just like opens up his coat. He's just like, look at this. I got bees in my ribs. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not just fucking around. There's bees. We had a, a kid's dick got cut off off camera. The dog died. Got a 
chest full of bees, a mouthful, mouthful of bees, a handful of bees, bees everywhere. You know, that's and not a drop of honey to drink. Do we know whether he had stuff in his nose? Probably. Mm. And I hate this (laughs) because I just, I just want at some point in this scene for him to say, "Write about me, my angel of folklore." All right. Yeah. So again, he's he he's today. They're gonna build a new myth, and his followers will remember him forever. Uh, she wakes up after passing out again, and he's not around. So she follows the cries of the baby to uh, a bonfire pile. Uh, at which point, Jake uh, walks out just in time to to see her, uh, to see the hook that she's Is carrying disappear into out? the fire. Like, it seems like Jake was sleeping out on the street like jake does not actually have a place to stay yeah i think he was sleeping like under an overhang or something like and one of the outdoor like hallways yeah yeah so he he has the the timing of a true comedian and happens to look up and just in time to see a hook disappear and and assumes that's the candy man in there we should burn it um Again, I think that this is one of those uh, orchestrated by by the Candyman moments. Again, yeah. first time, first time I saw this, I thought he realized it was Helen and still made the conscious decision <laughs> to light the fire. I actually think he does also, and but he understands what's happening. Yeah, well, I mean, if it's oh. Helen, I mean, he might, yeah, he might be like, oh yeah, she Candyman brought him, blah blah blah. Like he might know that they're the, one and the same in a certain way. Mm-hmm um that white lady oh burn her yeah <laughs> i mean considering what she puts him through during this whole thing right, right. Um, the whole scene where they're in the in the, we'll the police precinct and the police officer's like you did so good and he's like i want to go home i'd rather be in that hall in my sleeping bag than here i don't give a shit what you're telling me about whatever made-up story that you think that i did good um it's, it's and like how important it is that like um good outside of cabrini green looks different than good yeah. inside um, yeah that yeah from the outside someone's like yeah you did good but you as the reader as the watcher because you've been watching the movie understand that what is good for the outside of the community is not good for him yeah it's meaningless to him yeah. it's, it's in fact bad Like the first time I watched this, I thought that he was going to die, but like not via um, Candyman. I thought he was going to get killed by the gang members. Yeah. In retaliation, because it actually doesn't matter because they're all like, it doesn't matter because, you know, you won't be on, you know, like you won't be, you know, like testifying. It doesn't matter. They know he's a witness. Yeah. So we have, uh, yeah, Candyman definitely, if you know, in this whole idea that Candyman is supernaturally manipulating everything, I mean, definitely put the baby in there because I don't know how she would have unless she was there the whole time. Yeah. So, I mean, she crawls in and picks up the baby who's uh, in there, and Candyman gives her a surprise, uncomfortable hug from behind um, to try and keep her in in the pile of fire as they're starting to burn it. Um, When she eventually escapes from his grasp and starts uh crawling through the weird structure that they built inside the the fire there um after she hits him in the bee belly with the with the flaming steak stakes him right through that belly full of bees (laughs) maybe he's like a vampire and he like drinks bees what if 
I like, like that. Another urban legend ghost full of killer hornet showed up. Would like the killer hornet ghost eat the bee ghost? This is why we should have had Sweets versus Freddy instead of Freddy versus Jason because they are true equivalents. Yeah. Yeah. Also, the Jason bees, fight Michael Myers. Yeah. The bees would all team up around the hornets and then like they would overheat the hornets and kill them. That would be so hardcore with ghosts. Yeah. That would be an awesome ass anime. Yeah, so <laughs> I'm for it. TM uh, copyright, trademark, registered. So, so as she's this is my original this... Sonic character, do not steal. <laughs> as she's crawling out of the several large pieces of wood <laughs> all on her, she continues to burn, but manages to uh, crawl her way out of the fire and deliver the baby uh, to his, his waiting mom before uh, just just dying on spot. Um with like third degree burns like her hair is all burnt off and all this kind of yeah. shit i mean it's it's grotesque like it's seeing the the like she is on fire it's not one of those things where like she's near the fire and the fire and it's interesting uh they they keep it yeah. right like yeah it becomes like they, part of her myth is the hair on fire like that's but, a part of the legend now. yeah but yeah. like they don't even give her fiery hair or like change it to like long red hair which i feel like is what we would do now yeah, yeah. is that even with the fully done and she has noticeably different makeup that is bolder, more elegant than what she normally wears uh, in death, but they keep the damage of the hair from the burn, which I thought was yeah. really, really interesting. And the baby is safe to grow up to be Yaha Abdul Mateen II in 30 years. And for that, we are all grateful. I just, the babies in these movies, like, can you imagine being like ha- being an infant and having that that subconscious memory of um, dude standing over you with a hook, and also mm. like Tony, what T- that yeah. did to his mother. <laughs> mm. Imagine trying to like those first few years where you're trying to like express independence, but like your mom has like a legitimate good reason to think that like ghost monsters will kill your ass. Not well, I'm to talking mention- about the actor. Oh yeah. Just- <laughs> <laughs> Just oh, yeah, videos just about, of that must be therapy. It's like I remember my parents making me go to a bloody hook man. <laughs> it's like that's how we get satanic panic. Because then therapist's like, oh, that's abuse, and then it's like, no, you you were in a movie. Yeah, I'm glad that um, Toby Froud was never interviewed for any sort of satanic panic bullshit. Because that kid, having been thrown by David Bowie and like just surrounded by goblins, I mean, he's he's followed his father's footsteps. I'm pretty sure that. The Froud family are like just part wood nymph or just part tree. Yes. Tree nymph. Yeah. They, anyway. they yeah. Anyway. <laughs> Helen has the worst funeral where uh, only like four people show up and they're all people who hate her, including her ex husband and his girlfriend. Uh, and the, her, and the, the boldness. Diddy professor. Yeah. I'm going to say if I die. And my partner finds someone new in like two weeks. You can leave them at home. It's okay. Yeah. Also, she goes. She agrees to go. Like that, I think, is also like an important thing. It's not simply he brings her, but she goes full glam dress. The guy, yeah. Like she has the yeah, old, like the, the, like, like the scarf, like the, the, like the, the image she, she cuts is very classic noir which is not what she wears in any other scene right yeah so she dressed to impress she was like she was wearing i a got bra a dress even. for this and i assume the, the, what was it? there was 
Calabrini Green shows up and Jake shows up. And again, the first time I'm watching it, I thought Jake intentionally said it alive. So I was like, wow, fucking bold move. You said someone alive, then you crashed their funeral. Jake, you are, you are fucking ruthless. <laughs> yeah, so the, the whole, all of Cabrini Green shows up to pay respects. Uh, they are more, they're they're better than her, her own husband at that point. Um, and uh, yeah, so <laughs> this is where we get the, the final scene here. Uh, we go back to Trevor's apartment where he is crying on the toilet about his dead wife. Um, and his girlfriend is very upset that uh, he won't get out of the bathroom and come eat the steaks that she wants to make. These steaks um, that she just keeps chopping off pieces of and throwing away? Or something. She and she's like brandishing a knife. <laughs> was very bothered by her steak preparation. Yeah. I didn't see any salt and pepper on that camera. <laughs> We're on like a paper plate too, which I'm like, what the fuck? Why I mean, that? that was for this for is what I mean again she is 19 she should be making fucking top ramen and easy mac and cheese I mean she's trying, trying to give her steak but I mean yeah like anyway and he, he wistfully I... says her name into the Helen's name into the mirror several times and then she uh appears behind him to murder his ass she's got Good. the no uh, hair uh, yeah because like he realizes everything he did that was such a disaster and then he gets punished for it and that's what should happen and i guess she doesn't get yeah. a cool ghost name you just say helen in the mirror five times not even like bloody helen burning helen nothing like to that. to be fair it might be because her legend just began right yeah like so i bet you like it took a while before saying candy man in a mirror did something right like it's it's the growth of the myth that shapes it you know he is shaped by the rumors and and the theories about it so it worked because he was calling her specifically in the same yeah. way that it's not just saying it, the name Candyman, but it's saying it involves having the intention of summoning Candyman. that's why it has to be five times so it's not like you accidentally say the name right yeah and so he by saying it five times and he is talking about her specifically matters so this yeah. isn't Something that they obviously that they obviously could have had in the original because we're now decades later, but because of the way this movie played like white feminism and probably just like it's like, yeah, Helen is a pretty white lady name. It reminded me of like the that kind of totemic stereotype, like that totemic energy that now like surrounds like the name Karen. That the name Karen now yeah. represents more or bloody happened. or bloody Mary. Yeah. yeah. What happened, so, like, but in the, the middle of this Helen movie in my notes. In the middle of the movie in my notes, I just started calling her Liz, and that's not her name. I don't know what happened. <laughs> that's but not even that's not even the actress's name. That's not even well, the name of anybody that? in this movie. I was it's just like not. I was looking at my list and I was like Liz. But also like not any of the actresses. Like there's nothing. Uh, <laughs> Jeremy, what? All I can figure is some point. He was coming up with a new with a new story story <laughs> ideas. Just look in the mirror and say Liz five times. Um, Lizzie Kaplan uh, shows up. Lizzie she'll Borden. Guess, yeah, you got to fight Lizzie uh, Borden for that one. Yeah, uh, she'll guest star in a critically acclaimed episode. Yeah, <laughs> and, and then we we close on this new painting of Helen that is in the uh, inside the Candyman Chapel in in Cabrini Green now. 
And she's literally a white savior. But it's also interesting because there's so much lie to it, right? Yeah. Like there's, she is a white savior, but also she is a white savior because of the levels of omission to her story, right? Yeah. That her saving them obscures the fact that she put them more in danger, right? Yeah. That, that like, we, we, we can reasonably assume that he wasn't doing the murders before she showed up, right? That it was a solid flesh and blood threat. So then he started targeting them because she showed up, but her sacrifice allows her to be like a savior to them. Yeah, She 100% didn't save them from anything that she didn't put them in danger of in the first place. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. She she came in there and stirred all that up to begin with. And in being a white savior, she becomes like a villain again because the I like she does you do get the satisfying death of Trevor, but the fact is is that she still exists after that moment, right? Yeah. And then I'm sure that now Stacy has is probably the one who names her. Who he gives her the bloody Helen or, you know, that bitch <laughs> hell. Bloody Helen. Oh, I mean, I would actually say because the way that she becomes a myth, right, uh-huh. is not simply in that Stacy trying to say, because like they might say, you know, oh, there was so much torment, but anyone in Cabrini who hears what happens to that family knows, and that's how she gets her name. Oh, okay. I mean, that would be more because to gi- because to give her to give her like a nickname, someone has to believe, right? Yeah. And and Stacy isn't going to pass on the belief necessarily. Right. She's probably going to try to deny it as much as possible. Burn or she might, in I mean, Helen. <laughs> burn in um, Helen. Burn in Helen. Oh. Come on. Let's go to I, Helen. This good. hurts a lot. Like a <laughs> lot, <laughs> a lot. <clears throat> burning is her whole thing, right? She's burning. Um, it is, but it oh, should yeah, be. Burning Helen. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, let's look at her. Best friend's name was Bernie. Uh, uh, (laughs) uh, do we think this movie makes any attempt to deal with uh, LGBTQIA people or themes? No, no. We have our orderly looking for love, but other than that, no. Yeah. Also, he's an asshole. I mean, I think representation. Yeah, I also Bad. suspect that he was referring to uh, wanting to talk shit, sh- wanting to talk shit about her to her husband. Yeah, I, I think. I mean, a lot of Clive Barker's stuff, I think, is uh, has has very queer themes. And I think in this, mostly, it just is sort of replaced with sort of there's there's some sort of interracial stuff with you know forbidden love in here that takes the place. I think of some of what would usually be uh queer or pain obsessed uh you know pain pleasure stuff but yeah as a result i think it's remark remarkably straight for a clive barker based story uh but again it's one that he didn't direct uh and write the the movie of so that's not uh surprising no less horny than a usual clive barker movie though just wants you to believe in me i actually wonder i would actually say that it is it is romantic in place of the of the horniness because like Clive Barker's is his stuff is horny. Like it yeah. like there is 
like it is about sex this is yeah. less about sex if that makes sense again like i said literally the backstory of Candyman is the exact same opening of holes it's the same story um but like there is uh, a concept of romance and the disruption of intimacy as opposed to like sex itself yeah it's very like vampire romance where it's very suggestive and you know with the with the kind of the the with the the imagery at least mm-hmm. um and then with the uh, the dialogue and everything and and the um cinematography and pacing it's it's a lot more about um yeah it's a lot less about physical uh, I mean, it's, it's very vampire down to the sort of tranciness of his being around yeah and, and him floating yeah uh let's see uh, how about how do we feel about this the way this movie deals with uh, it doesn't really do much with physical disabilities but mental illness uh, it, we do Oof. get a not great portrayal of a, a psych ward oh boy yeah, yeah it's uh... I mean it's, it's pretty accurate for a 90s psych ward yeah and then, yeah it's it it makes more commentary about how we treat mental illness than having mental illness yeah yeah that's in a, a lot of ways uh, that's a great way to say it. And it says a lot about gaslighting and emotional abuse. And what that does. Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, yeah, and I, I think it's the same thing a lot of horror movies say about gaslighting is bad. Um, <laughs> I'm, I mean, but, I'm glad we haven't covered many movies that are pro-gaslighting. But I think it also is important because it not only explicitly does that, but also frames gaslighting as secular. You know, yeah. that like, which I don't think is... Like, usually when we see gaslighting in horror movies, it stops with the first victim of gaslighting. Yeah. We don't usually see that character then having learned and applied the same things uh, unintentionally in yeah, the which, same way. Which is a lot more profound, I think, especially because of how that, I mean, the, the, the cycle of toxicity and the cycle of abuse you know, it's not just within one lane, you know, she's, um, uh, Helen is gaslit by her partner on one way, but uses the exact same behavioral cues of his gaslighting to gaslight a community or, you know, members of a community in a particular way that doesn't have to do with, with romance, but it still has to do with identity. Yeah, I, um, I think with the and, exception and of like the, Jordan Peele stuff, we usually see gaslighting not in a racial context in horror movies, but much more in like a romantic context between, you know, a, a man and woman generally. Yeah. And I think that there's also a thing where she continues to use it, mm-hmm. but it's very, it's, it is very interesting in that it is an accurate portrayal of a sort of, uh, uh, emotional issues that come from like kind of second generation emotional abuse right in that the difference between her and her husband is her husband knows he's lying yeah yeah is that she 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 would not say that she was doing anything wrong or intentional she doesn't yeah she doesn't know she's glad yeah she doesn't know she's gaslighting um she doesn't know she's being dismissive she doesn't know that throughout this whole thing that she's just putting herself on a pedestal yeah, but like privilege that she's right. weaponizing without even knowing it uh whereas he is intentionally doing it to her right yeah yeah absolutely 
um yeah i guess that's that's sort of where we hit our, our intersection of the um the last two things we'd be discussing here which uh, is generally we, we've talked about this some already but is do we think Candyman is feminist i think it's n- not not feminist <laughs> i think it is backtracking a little from what i said earlier but still kind of being like i don't think it's like feminist i think that there's an argument that in dealing with white femininity in the way that it does that is a uh, very much a form of intersectional feminism mm-hmm. that it is not you know like very blanket argument like this is a feminist movie. but can you really say that it's not a feminist movie if it's critiquing white feminism and yeah. the people that it most affects are people who are marginalized yeah yeah i uh, and i i I mean i don't know if if you asked bernard rose uh if that's what he had in mind uh if he would say yes but like i I think it does it effectively i I think it does it consistently um and i I think you know it it does it really solidly it it has this it's like we've talked about you know the way lgbt themes show up and things that don't seem to know they have them. Um, I feel like that is, seems that feels very much the same case with this. Of like, oh, I don't know if he knew exactly that this is what he was laying out, but um, you know that those those concepts are much more. He must have had some idea, right? Like, yeah. even if he didn't use that phrasing, the dynamic is too strong and too consistent. Yeah, for him not to have some understanding of the fact that he was writing a story in which her whiteness is a negative to this community in some real ways because she keeps getting called out on it until yeah. they until they are literally by the fact that she keeps doing this to to them forced to to hold her as a hero because now they just need to get out and they're so relieved to be out of the cycle that she yeah. becomes a hero I think that that her becoming a hero at the end is uh, it, it kind of muddles the message to me like her becoming part of that you know she becomes the story Candyman wins that's you but, know like she becomes the- a hero for this story but that makes her a villain for all eternity yeah yeah which is an which is such an interesting dynamic that I feel like it can't not be intentional right like because there's no argument that if she becomes she becomes a murderer that if you say her name in the in the mirror five times and she just kills folk that she ends as the same as Candyman, which is a terrifying threat yeah but on the flip side she gets she gets that at as like a trade-off to being the hero of her own yeah yeah she so she's so her identity is essentially taken from her yeah um appropriated if you will um but the uh, I I feel like if the the um, if the writers if the director had it in mind to really make this about white feminism in like a decisive way there would have been more to that you know that so the parts of that would be more explicit. But I don't I feel also a way is that the movie is more interesting by making it more complicated because if you made it a straightforward like oh. Like, if you made this the most straightforward version of this ending, mm-hmm. 
you get it makes me think of people not getting that rose as a villain still at the end of get out yeah and this Ooh. is like a proto version of that right that yeah. if it was a straightforward she becomes a villain at the end like she's not even a hero of her own story she's just a straight up villain like because in the end her being a hero in her own story still involves her being a murderer a bloody vicious murderer right and yeah. that is more of a conversation topic than her getting a neater cleaner ending yeah the, the one thing i uh, on the question of race with this is uh Bernard Rose was talking about wanting to shoot in Cabrini Green because there is such a weird and palpable sense of fear around that, not from the people who live there, but from people who hold it as in the same way that we we see in a lot of the fiction of it as being like a mythological place where horrible things happen, like that people like won't drive by it because they're so afraid of the Cabrini Green projects. Um, uh, when when they were before filming they literally when tony todd and uh virginia madsen was walking around they were apparently were like this is not a great experience as they had to walk around with plainclothes officers mm. through the projects uh as they yeah. like a cust- which is like a twofold thing right it's like this element of like fear but it's also this how much does having plainclothes officers with you create the danger in the yeah. same exact way that happens in the movie with Helen and everyone thinking she's an officer and how that actually puts them in more danger. Yeah. yeah. Also, I just can't imagine how different those experiences were for Tony Todd and Virginia Madsen as a white woman in that situation and a black man in that situation. Yeah. Yeah. Uh. And hopefully that subtlety, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that some of that um, experience has brought, brought the subtlety, the successful subtlety to this film that it may not have had the, I mean, like the, in the nineties, this movie is speaking with a vocabulary that we're familiar with now that I don't think would, I don't think that shit would have landed at all. I mean, like, I don't no. think people would have picked up on that. Um, and uh, because it is, it is very complex and it is a lot more complex in, in how it tells its story than uh, like something like the first purge. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, I appreciate that uh pretty well it's just you know for a horror movie sometimes i i get frustrated because i want the you know a message to be decisive um you know especially in genre films but i i this movie like watching it again i really did appreciate how i mean yeah it brought a whole bunch of stuff into it also the stuff that you brought up about how everything is integrated and how you know her because at first i felt like the uh her becoming the um the the legend at the end felt a little off like if it felt kind of sideways to the story about race but then the fact that it is all integrated in her in in this the candy man story and basically she's and now you think about him saying you must be my victim he's not talking about not just literally but in the story and then she is now part of his story forever he's she's not just one of the victims now she is named also what's interesting though is that it's not a fully new piece of art right yeah Which almost in like when she comes back like the outfit she's wearing there's like this indication that as the myth continues she's going to become his lover like right. but yeah. like from the original story that those yeah. two characters will be merged like and you get that from the sense that like did you know, anyone and- else get the implication that Helen might be like the reincarnation? 
they actually do that in the other two movies yeah um and he has that line where he's like it was always you i mean that i felt like could have been either that or uh the fact that all of this shit was all her fault um that you know it was always you but then she was the the she was pictured as i i am guessing the white woman from the story right yeah right so she becomes that woman like because it whether or not it's her in 1994 or this other white woman doesn't matter to the myth in the same way that it doesn't matter if he is a specific daniel yeah this is this is what i love about this movie and i think part of like what this is i i think the essence of what like we try to get to with this podcast is that like this movie has some shit to say that isn't necessarily like clear cut and has some depth and unanswered questions and uh you know a lot to say about topics that is is way ahead of its time uh yeah. especially for a scary movie with with a hook-handed man stabbing people I mean, yeah when you get down to it isn't candy man really just a movie about how white women be crazy yeah. <laughs> yeah well i mean for me the 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 message is very clearly like you, if you if you doubt black problems you are black problems yes like that is and that, that was kind of his point right like that was actually why rose chose chicago mm-hmm. because he was uh so upset by the ignoring of these r- racial and economic problems that he was like as we're telling this in the 90s, this is what we do. This is where we move it to. This We make it about race. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, unfortunately, because uh, of America's uh, pretty uh, prevalent racial history is one of the reasons that making that change rather than it being directly about class, like just about class, is mm-hmm. one of the reasons that the movie survives, right? Yeah. Because uh, it is unfortunately something that is very it is easy to see where the lines are and where people are transgressing in a way that if it had been a purely class-based movie yeah uh it wouldn't have been there's so many great like one-to-one metaphors of what Candyman represents and what you know not just urban legends but also um you know the uh that like partially a perpetuation of of the toxicity of of fear you know the the fear of this community um and you know and then this all becomes when it's when it has like the spotlight of this outsider shined on it it becomes that much more aggravated and and more complicated than it you know um initially was and you know i think it's also a really good um story and very complex story about the the idea the white feminism the white savior complex you know and all those things and how they really really affect people um and you know the it's you don't have a like big one-to-one metaphor in this movie you have a bunch of small ones which makes it that much more of um of of i'm gonna go ahead and say masterpiece of um detailed critiques um and it's and it's pretty good it's good movies pretty yeah <laughs> well well shot well, i guess on that note do we uh, recommend people check this movie out oh immediately definitely why are you Absolutely. not watching it right it's, now it's a icon of the horror genre for a reason it's this movie's awesome definitely recommend yeah. 
yeah it's a movie you can talk about it like we talked about it for like yeah hours. there's um, a lot to say yeah and it's and- not like a david lynch movie where you're like what happened here you know <laughs> we know what happened yeah and i think i was gonna actually bees. say that that's, that's one of the happened. best things is that I think that you can watch it on your own, have completely different conversations than us. Not necessarily be like wrong or like incorrect, but it's not, it's not, and everyone who is a Lynch fan is going to attack me, but this actually isn't said negatively. There's no pretension to the story itself, right? (laughs) Like it's not, you're never sitting there like, is it saying something here or am I making up that it's saying something? It's just more, what is it saying? If that makes sense. Absolutely. Cause I mean, you know, David Lynch is like, you're going to, this is going to be as interactive as possible in that I'm not going to explain anything. You're going to put, you know, you're going to put these images together. And you know, if you're into that, cool. If you're not cool, like I get it. But, um, you know, and, and for me, you know, when I see a movie, like that's, that's the thing is when I see a David Lynch movie or when I see this movie with this, this kind of um, pretension, I think that's an a apt word for it. Um, you know, I, I'm expecting this level of complexity. This movie is rewarding in its level of complexity and, you know, and also like maybe a little bit frustrating, you know, cause I've, I've this movie with about a man with a hook um, is like this incredibly in-depth a uh, story critique about um, cyclical trauma and um, white feminism and and you know uh, class and race in this country. So um, you know, and the more I think about it, the more it kind of all fits together. So uh, yeah. <laughs> well, if people have watched this and uh, they are looking for some more recommendations of, of something to follow it up with, uh, what do you guys recommend, Danny? What do you got? Oh boy, uh, it's. I was trying to think, and uh, I feel like I may have also recommended this last time I was on, mm-hmm. but it still fits for this. Um, is uh, Ring Shout uh, by PJ Jelly Clark, um, which is about a world in which the KKK is not just racist white men, but also also demons. Um, and they use uh, they use a very historical film re-release to finish demonic rituals, but you're doing it from the perspective of black women that are demon hunters. Uh, it's a novella. It is very good. Highly recommend. But also, uh, I would say this is not exactly the same. But Riot Baby, uh, it is a award-winning novella about. Uh, two siblings uh, who live in the projects, uh, one of whom ends up in prison. Um, and it's about his his trauma, both in prison and when he gets out. And also his sister who has very kind of uh, fire starter-esque abilities and wrestling with what she should do with them when her brother has been in Highly recommend. Awesome. Nice. Uh, Emily, what have you got? Uh, well, I'm going to go ahead and just grab Attack the Block. Yes. Yep. Um, Great pick. Yeah, if uh, if we've done a show on it, but I would just go watch it if I were you, listener. And then, um, and then listen to the show and then just do it over and over again. Um, apparently, we're getting a sequel, which is really cool, maybe. Mm-hmm. They recently announced that. Um, also, Tales from the Hood. 
How did I not say Tales Ooh. from the Hood? Watch the first Tales of Tales from the Hood. Uh, like especially the uh, psychic vampire story. Ooh. Ooh. Um, in there, yeah. um, I think is a very good discussion. And there's also like the gentrification real estate story in there too. So absolutely, uh, watch that one. Uh, I mean, I would recommend the Neil Gaiman stuff. And Nazi Boys uh, doesn't really have a lot to talk about with class so much as as um, I mean, it's it's also doesn't come with the same kind of sensitivity as this film does. But the you know the American Gods, the first season of American Gods, I would check out. Just the first one. Uh, yep. Mm-hmm. Just the first Agreed. one. Guys, just pretend like that is the end. Yeah. Especially just... if you're looking for good discussions about race. Yes. But it's uh, also a great white feminism. Yes. Yes. And also, yes. And a little bit of that in uh, Lovecraft Country. I mean, if we want to talk about that in, in historical context rather than contemporary. If you really like the aesthetic you know, ladies walking around trying to solve mysteries with big cl- coats on, just watch original or watch first season X-Files. Hey. The lead in this movie really reminds me of Gillian Anderson so much that I thought it was Gillian Anderson at first yes. when I first saw this film. Yeah. <laughs> My brain literally went like as much as the cast is perfect. I was like Gillian Anderson. And then, uh, I mean, for a scene, I was like, uh, Cree Summers because she wears that Cree Summers in the different world uh, get up. Oh um, yeah, yeah. When she's about to get killed, but I was like, you could do this with Gillian Anderson and Rachel True. Oh, that would have been good casting. <laughs> oh man, yeah, I feel sad <laughs> that, that would have worked. Wasn't a show about Gillian Anderson and Rachel True trying to like solve mysteries. <laughs> yes, as Rachel um, True is like, that. please, please, and please. Rachel True is actually when Rachel True is the lead. Yes. And Jillian Anderson is like the the well-meaning but ignorant um but also like kind of sensitive uh white friend. Yeah. She's always asking how she's doing. Yeah, she's like, <laughs> "Yep. Girl, how are you?" Now it's Jillian <laughs> Anderson's turn to ask, "Are you doing okay?" <laughs> <laughs> uh, was there anything oh, else Emily? Or? That's it. All right. Well, what about you, Ben? Uh, I I don't know if I've recommended this before, but I am going to recommend uh, Paranoia Agent uh, from director Satoshi Kon, a series about the power of urban legend and shared belief. It's so good. Ah, cool. Awesome. I have to watch that again. I just got it on Blu-ray, so I'm going to be doing it shortly. Nice. Do a show about that. I have to watch it first. Oh. <laughs> I have to watch it again because I haven't I... seen it since it was on. TV. Or Perfect Blue. Yeah. If you want to talk about if you want to talk about the the breakdown of your the meltdown of your lead female character, like that's where you go. I feel like Black Swan was still too recent for me. (laughs) (laughs) We we talked about Perfect Blue when we uh, talked about Black Swan. Uh, Uh, But I definitely want to talk about Perfect Blue in the future. Um, Maybe a few more like uh, Freakies or what was the other one? Tales from the Crypt. A few more fun horror movies. Yeah, yeah, a few uh, more of those. All right, as far as my recommendations go, now this is, by the time this is coming out, we are going to be a week away from the new Candyman film, uh, which obviously I haven't seen yet. So like, the, take that into account with the you know, recommendation, but is exciting. Like on the, on the 20th of August, uh, that is supposed to be coming out 
and seems in a lot of ways a more direct sequel to this even than the you know second and third Candyman movies and it is directed by Nia DaCosta and written by Jordan Peele and Wynn uh, Wynn Rosenfield and Nia DaCosta so like it's you know it even has Vanessa Williams playing her character from this movie jumping into it so like that's definitely something to to keep in mind if you're looking for something else like this and if you haven't seen it and listened to our episodes on it uh Hellraiser and Hellraiser 2 if you like the Clive Barker creepiness you like the forbidden lost part of this then you know that's absolutely something worth checking out uh you know speaking of Jordan Peele get out is very much uh, has a, a, a lot of the race and, and white feminism bits of this movie done in, in a more uh, modern sensibility even. Uh, I had Tales from the Hood on here. Obviously, that's a good one. Night of the Living Dead, I think, has a lot of the same kind of bits in there. Um, if you haven't seen Night of the Living Dead, absolutely watch that one. And uh, Cassie Lemons doesn't have a whole much a whole lot to do in this movie other than uh, be supportive and get killed but she also directed eve's bayou which is uh definitely <sighs> one worth checking out so um, good yeah it's not the only movie she's directed she's had a couple of not so well received ones of late but um yeah uh definitely eve's bayou is, is worth worth your time to check out um so all that said uh let's get this wrapped up danny where can people find you online uh, I am entirely too much on Twitter over at WereDogs, W-E-R-E-D-A-W-G-Z. Also technically on Instagram there, but uh, less so because I forget that like pictures are a thing. And uh, people can buy champions right now, right? You got Oh, yes. Uh, issue as we f- as we record this issue eight just came out. All right. So we should be probably right on the edge of nine coming out by the time this comes out. So. Yeah, go check it out. There's plenty of champions for you to read from Danny. Uh, Emily, where can people find you online? Megamoth on Twitter. Megamoth on Tumblr. Megamoth.net on the internet. Megamoth on the Patreon. That's M-E-G-A-M-O-T-H. And on Instagram, Mega underscore Moth. And on TikTok, Mega period Moth. I'm not doing anything on TikTok yet. So you can be the first person if it happens. I was hoping you were just going to leave it like, mega moth and then david lynch like elaborate on that no no <laughs> i mean if you ask me to elaborate i'll probably say no but and you uh, can find me online on twitter at, at ben the con uh check out bencon.comics.com and check out renegade rule in stores now and uh, I am on Twitter and Instagram at jrom58. My my website is jeremywhitley.com. As this comes out, you are only a couple of weeks away from free comic book day, at which point there will be a preview of the second book of School for Extraterrestrial Girls from myself and Jamie Noguchi. Uh, and that will, again, be a few more weeks after that from coming out. So if you haven't read the first book of School for Extraterrestrial Girls, go pick it up now. If you haven't, if you haven't pre-ordered the second one, go do that from Paper Cuts. Uh, at your local comic book store or your local bookstore where it'll be available as well. Uh, as for the podcast, Progressively Horrified is on Patreon at patreon.com slash Progressively Horrified. We would love it if you would go there and support us, help us uh, make more more good po- podcasts about good scary movies. We are on Twitter at Prog Horror Pod and our website is progressivelyhorrified.transistor.fm. Please go rate, subscribe, review, get more people to listen to this. Uh, we enjoy doing this, but we would love to have more people hear us do it. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, I do 
again, want to uh, thank Danny for joining us. This was a lot thank of fun. You. Thank you awesome. for having me. I always have fun. Thank yeah. you so much for joining us. You giant nerds. Yeah. Hell yeah. And uh, as always, thanks for all of you guys for listening. And until next time, stay horrified. Progressively Horrified was created and produced by Jeremy Whitley. This episode featured Jeremy Whitley, Ben Kahn, Emily Martin, and Danny Lohr. All opinions expressed by the commentators are solely their own and not intended to represent the intent or opinion of the filmmakers, nor do they represent any of the employers, institutions, or publishers of the commentators. Our theme music is Epic Darkness by Mario Cole 06 and is provided royalty-free from Pixabay. Please support us on Patreon or contact us by Twitter at Pod or by email at progressivelyhorrified at gmail.com.